When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm going to begin with a very localized question. Okay. Know, a question I think the listeners may not be able to answer. Okay. But you may. William, uh, William Owen? Is that what you called? Yeah, something like that. Excellent. Do you remember that like cream coffee table we had when we were kids in the living room? I do remember the cream coffee table that we had as kids in the living room. Did and the it listeners like, know that? Sort of, that? It's sort of like, like, yeah, it was cream and it had like, it was like thatched like mm. straw like top surface yeah i remember that you remember how it just disappeared i, did, well, I when you asked that my first thought was what did happen to that so not really but i think that's you, that's the point in a disappearance yeah you remember how that just disappeared sometime in late 2007 yeah yeah you remember how that disappeared sometime at the end of september in 2007 wait wait <laughs> are you joking me no, I'm not. Wait, did our father smash it at the end of this our game? Our father smashed that. What the fuck? S- yeah. I never knew this. Yeah. Have you been withholding this information from me for 16 years? Because. What? No, so I remember we might it do a, being podcast on this. a rugby match and it fits with around mm. that time, right? And I remember, obviously, so a big moment of kind of squid rugby lore, if you will is our mother demanding we come down and watch the where was this following game that came against England at Twickenham with mm-hmm. everyone because they want they figured that if you and I, you know, the small children were there with our father, he wouldn't lose his temper so much as he did the last okay. time we was played, which was against Fiji. Interesting. Right? And that coffee table was broken by him in a fit of rage after a rugby match after Wales lost a bad game around that time. What and I've fuck? always put those two pieces of information together. I never knew that. I never knew that. <laughs> so as I was watching this game, I did consult our mother about this for information. She doesn't remember the game. And she says, mm. oh, I guess none of us will have watched that. Oh, maybe your father did. And I went, yeah, he watched it. All yeah. Right. No, I remember. I remember his bad mood afterwards. I remember right. being really angry. I remember not quite understanding the extent of it. Yeah. Uh, we got very inside baseball very quickly. This is the Squid Rugby World Cup Retrospective podcast. Uh, thank uh-huh. you for listening. Today, we are here to talk about Wales against Fiji from the 2007 Rugby World Cup. We are indeed. And you've already said that I'm Will Owen. People already yeah. know that. People already know who I am. But people might be interested in who you are. Uh, I'm Rob, your Squid Rugby, you call me. We are brothers for the sake of clarity on that story. Great. Because the thing is, right, this game is incredibly famous the world over for being a wonderful, incredible rugby match. This is one of the best games we've covered on this podcast. I think it's yeah, a phenomenal agreed. game of rugby watching it back. Yeah. However, it's also particularly famous in Wales because everyone up and down the country has one of those stories of where they were, what they were doing, what they broke, wh- wh- where they went and cried afterwards. Yeah. It's one and of the real Welsh rugby, where were you stories. Yeah. And we've not done this very often in this podcast. So we're both obviously Welsh fans. Mm. And 
in 2011, we covered mm. the Wales-France semi-final with mm. Sam Warburton getting sent off. And we did that whole thing of the, the therapeutic nature of watching that back. Was it worth mm. it? Not really. That kind of thing. And then we've done the 1987 Rugby World Cup. And like, we didn't care about that Welsh team or have any emotional attachment yeah. to them. And they came third place, which is mental considering they were shite. They were terrible so, and I didn't like watching them. No, exactly. Like, if anything, I wanted them to lose that third place playoff. Mm. And like... I guess we've covered the Lions tests from 2009, but also yeah. I think history's remembered that as they were given an impossible task and gave it a really good go, rather and than... And also, like, those games are remembered as the all-time, like, maybe the most competitive, all-time, yeah, great, exactly. most level test series imaginable. Exactly. Whereas this is something that is remembered so, so badly in Wales. Like, there is not a player who wasn't hounded for this you know like to kind of skip to it at full time you see you know like Stephen Jones and Colin Charvis and Martin Williams all stood with this look on their face that says ah shit we are going to get the biggest shit storm for the next week or so and we're going to be judged on this forever whereas obviously you don't think of Colin Charvis and go, oh my God, he was so shit in that game against Fiji. That's not the first <laughs> thing that comes to mind. No. Or Stephen Jones or whatever, because obviously life and rugby goes on after that. But it was one of those results and occasions that was so bad that this Welsh team couldn't see past next week. Yes. And there's a lot we'll get into that. However, I mm. do want to, you know, as well as dwelling on the Welsh side and like I've just done a series of podcasts with Gavry Owen for Scrum 5 on Wales's opponents in the World Cup and we talk about where we each were and I mentioned the thing about the coffee table to Gavry Owen who isn't related he is not our father no but yeah he talks about you know watching it in a bar and like Josh Gardner of who's been on this podcast before will be on it again I'm no doubt sure but hopefully you know bring him up I remember saying broke a sofa afterwards wow. like you know I think the stories all across Wales of what happened however I reckon there's just as many stories if not more well no because Fiji has a smaller population but an awful lot of Fijians absolutely losing their shit yeah when this took place when this happened it's mad because we are very keen to celebrate both sides of the story mm. on this podcast and yet that hadn't even occurred to me today <laughs> uh, which I think says a lot about where this lands in the history of Welsh rugby, right? That, sure. Uh, where, yeah. how it's thought back upon, because I do think this is remembered with zero empathy towards the Fijian side of it. Do you think? I, I think, think in Wales it I is. I think that's a very, yeah, sure. I think that's a very, very Welsh telling of the story. It is. I think it's it remembered is. as, at the time, it was the Rugby World Cup's biggest ever upset. I think. Yeah. And it's obviously since been overtaken a couple of times. One of those games involving Fiji themselves, or at yeah. least it was, you know, a similar level of upset. However, it was an enormous, enormous day for Fijian rugby. The first time they qualified for the knockout since 1987 when they had bloody superboot. So, of course, they were going to qualify. Yeah, it's always going to happen. That's not an upset if you've got superboot on your team. No. And here, they didn't have superboot on their team, which is completely different. Yeah, exactly. Can I just ask you, have you ever seen this game in full before? No. Had you? Me neither. No, I I hadn't. But I think both being fans of Welsh rugby and this being such a historic occasion, we've both seen lots of bits of this game. I knew all the tries. I yeah. knew everything that happened in this game. I had not watched it in context. Yes. I, I think knew it was I knew... a highlights package. Yeah, that's it. I think I knew most of the tries. I will have seen mm. all of the tries, but I feel like there are moments in this game that you can filter out when you've seen the highlights package. Because, like, let's be honest, there's one or two tries in particular that you see, like, Every couple of weeks. Della Sowes, yeah. Della Sowes, yeah. And Shane Williams. 
Yeah. Those ones do the rounds constantly. Mm. But put, like, let's say, let's catch this up mind back to the last episode of the podcast where we mm. went, okay, next up it's Wales versus Fiji. How bad did you think it was going to be? Honestly, I was quite looking forward to it in a kind of way. Because I yeah. knew it as an all-time great game, right? That Me I hadn't too. seen. And the thing about this podcast, right? Obviously, we covered 2011 first, which was an all-time great Welsh team, an all-time most beloved Welsh team. Mm. I think is the most beloved Welsh team since the 70s, that Sam Warburton-inspired yeah. 2011 Welsh team. It's a rare Welsh team that neutrals liked. Because mm, okay. it's this weird okay. thing where, like, nobody admits to it. But, like, no neutrals ever really cheer for Wales. Because they're a big dog that can get knocked over easily. Sure. However, sure. there was something in that tournament and the kind of alchemy of Wales having been so shit in the previous tournament and the young team and, like, Warburton being such a great role model and all of that. And, you know, the, the likes of George North and so on all being so likeable and Halfpenny and what have you. And the older heads, you know, were players like Adam Jones and Gavin Jenkins who were really, like, easy to get behind. And I think it led to this kind of really lovable Welsh team that everyone really really fell into and really yeah. really enjoyed where i think you look at this right everyone was cheering for fiji you know people in this world cup are desperate for wales to get knocked out mm. and it's not anything to do with wales it's not because people hit wales as a nation it's because wales are the smallest population of any tier one nation they have the smallest budget and resources and so on therefore well you know arguably you know italy whatever but they're amongst them anyway italy getting knocked out in the group stage isn't an upset wales is and people love an upset. People love an underdog. And the thing is, Wales are more of a target for smaller underdogs than they are an yeah. underdog themselves. Yeah. And there's not really a distinct style of play that Wales had that kind of garnered fans, as is often the case with, mm. you know, a tier one nation who people would not hey, happily cheer against. And that's why we should bring in Wayne Pivak. Right. Yeah. But on the flip side of that, despite what I was saying a minute ago, this Fiji team have captured my heart throughout this tournament. Yeah. Well, they have so many absolute worldies in their team. And that's the thing. Having watched this tournament so far, right? Having watched all of Wales and Fiji's pool games leading into this, I have not liked watching this Welsh team. They have been kind of turgid and horrible and full of James Hook. Like, yeah. But like, I've got no great strong feelings towards them, which as a Wales fan isn't a good sign. I haven't enjoyed it. They've been broadly shit. They should have lost to Canada. I felt frustrated they didn't because yeah. Stephen Jones came on. I agree with that. They were terrible against Australia again. And you know what? They were pretty good against Japan. Yeah. But that game was kind of overshadowed by Japan scoring one of the greatest tries the World Cup has seen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Despite Wales scoring a gazillion in response. No one cares about those. No. This Fiji team, on the other hand, have been so much fun. You know, like they didn't have the greatest game against Australia. They had a pretty good patch immediately on the other side of half time. Yeah. But their win over Canada was, an, that was a fantastic game. It was a yeah. really good, really competitive, really fierce game. And their Japan game was one of the best games of this tournament, I think. Yeah. It yeah. was just like such a contest. You had Luke Thompson being unbelievable. You had Akapusi Ungera being even more unbelievable. Yeah. You know, Rubini's been such a thrill throughout this tournament. Fiji was such an easier team to like watching this tournament as a Welsh fan who is essentially a neutral because you're watching it so far back on, right? Yeah. Until you get to this game where I think suddenly there's an emotional charge to it that changes everything. For sure. Uh, I do think Fiji probably approached that Australia game with one eye on Wales, mm. knowing that that was the more realistic upset to, to make. But I do think 
that as I went into this, as I say, like we got through the last episode Mm. and then talked about, right, where was Fiji's next? And I think what I expected was Wales will be all right. You know, Mm. like Wales will deliver like a five or six out of 10 performance and just get blown off the park by a, a Fiji team who are a little bit lucky, but also throw the ball about and score some batshit tries, essentially. Yeah. That was what I expected the game would be. And in a sense, that was what it was because Fiji were incredible. They scored some amazing tries, made some amazing line breaks that don't make the highlights package. Like there's so many yeah. moments that we're going to talk about that we have never seen before. And yet... From a Welsh perspective, mm. I never thought it would be this bad. That's the thing, isn't it? Right? That I think we've got an interesting perspective on this. Is people are emo- immensely emotionally invested and yet haven't seen this game. Yeah. We both, as I say, have heard so much about this game. And there's something about the Welsh rugby identity as a fan where people are inherently pessimistic and will dress everything up. And that's fine. We do it as well. We do it more than anybody else. No, it's something I've always thought is interesting because I think it is this kind of hangover from literally hundreds of thousands of years of oppression, of rule by others, of never being given anything, you know, like... Welsh as an identity, you know, like the idea of Welsh nationalism at all basically begins in the early 1900s with Wales beating England in rugby for the first time and then Wales beating New Zealand, who were the best team in the world at the time. And it starts to grow to a point where people are like, yeah, I'm proud to be Welsh rather than, you know, looking at Wales as essentially like a village, like a, you know, area. There wasn't really a concept of Wales as a nation where, well, no, there was, that's oversimplifying, but like the role that rugby played in the late 1800s and early 1900s in Wales starting to feel like something you'd be proud of being. You know, proud of being from Wales, proud of being Welsh in a different way to how you're proud of being from Derbyshire or whatever. Sure. It's so intrinsically tied to Wales. And I think there's something really interesting happening at the minute where this idea of Wales becoming more independent and breaking off from England is very much tied to football and very much tied to Wales becoming competitive in football worldwide on a, you know, a far greater, grander world scale. Like there is something in the kind of sporting microcosm that I think is a really, really interesting kind of political, socio-political kind of element of wealth culture. And yeah, this game and this whole thing kind of ties in as that, as I say, like pessimism approach and the fact Wales are going in here worried about losing. Yeah. And yet I thought whenever people talked about this game that mm. they were kind of deliberately overplaying it and going yeah. like, oh, it was shit because we lost to Fiji, which who we were expected to beat. And, you know, we've witnessed Wales lose these games all the time. You yeah. know, we witnessed them lose to Georgia last year and, you know, lose to Italy well, last year and so on. Like that Italy game was fine because Wales weren't that shit, whisper it. Italy were just like a much better team who mm. deserved to beat us. And that was what I was expecting. But no, th- this was so tragic. I figured it would be devastating because Graham Dew scores his try so late to win the game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. like it's kind of... But here's the thing. This game, from a Welsh perspective, is every kind of devastating loss at once. Yeah, it is. It is. It is a game in which you are completely blown off the park. It's a game which you're beaten by a team that you absolutely should be beating, you know, 99 times out of 100. It's a game in which you lose it heartbreakingly at the end. It's a game that you think you've got sewn up, then somehow don't. Yeah. It's a game in which you have a chance to win it at the death, and then you don't. It's a game in which you're not in it at all. It's like it's everything's full... painful. 
It's a full Six Nations wooden spoon wrapped into 80 minutes. <laughs> yes. Uh, because you go through all of those processes, like, individually. Mm. And you couldn't help but get emotionally caught up in it watching it again. And I usually, when not. doing a lot of the podcast to let Daylight in upon magic, I'll skip forward stoppages a bit, you know, and I kind of fast forward through things a bit. I decided not to do that here. I wanted to really take it in. I do that occasionally yeah, with same. a really big game. Same. And you can't help but get immensely emotionally invested in this. Yeah, for sure. This is such a big deal for Fiji. And you don't immediately get the sen- the yeah. same sense from Wales? Yeah. Well, I, it's interesting, I think, because Wales look nervous. Like, Wales look on edge mm. the entire way. For the first 10 minutes, and 10 might be a bit of a stretch, you know, it might be just less than, it might be just more than, I kind of got the impression, like, oh, Wales are all over yeah. here. Like, Wales look good for the first 10 minutes. And it's like, that It only reinforced my preconception of what this game would well, be. I think... Yeah, we'll get onto this as we go. But there's something very interesting when you read up on the game a bit, because there's plenty written and spoken about out there on this game, both from the kind of world rugby side, as they look at this as one of the great upsets, one of the great moments, look at it from a more Fijian angle and from a kind of neutral World Cup angle. And also, there's yeah. so much out there from a worse perspective, because so yeah. much happens around it. It was kind of a storm that brought down an enormous chapter on Welsh rugby. Yeah. This is kind of the end of something that had rolled on, really, for about 25 years. You're kind of looking at, like, the 80s and 90s where Wales are terrible and very insular and infighting. And it rolls into the professional era, and then it kind of reaches ahead in this game, and Wales are blown out the World Cup by Fiji, and they go, we've got to change something, and they bring in Warren Gatland. And so it begins a brand new era in which things are very different. <laughs> which is still happening. Yeah, and then we briefly go, what if we had a different broad-shoulder Kiwi guy who made us look a bit more like, no, don't do that, let's get back to Warren. Yeah. And he's, you know, the way he's talking, he's talking like he's going to be here like for the next World Cup as well. So, you know what, it's never going to end. And I'm mostly okay with that. Yeah, however, when you read about it from a Fijian perspective, it's very interesting how different it is. Right. The Welsh players, when you read, you know, Gareth Thomas's autobiography, when you look back at other players, Adam Jones has been interviewed about this in the past. I watched back the segment from the Slammed documentary the BBC made on this area. Oh, okay. Watched back the area on this game in particular, because they don't really mention anything else that happens in this World Cup. They only mention this game. Yeah. All the Welsh players talk about how nervous they were going in. However, when you look at Nicky Little, the fly half of Fiji, right, I'm going to read a quote. From him, from the Sunday after this game, the game was played on Saturday, following day, he said, we weren't playing for survival, we were playing for a positive end. That's why the boys did so well. We don't care about much at all. We're in the game, then it's on to something else. The mentality was so much easier. That honestly says so much. Fiji looked like they were having a chuck about in the yeah. park, like half the time. They looked so carefree in this game. And obviously, when Wales score tries, they obviously problem solve and think about mm. how they can fix that. But... There is such a genuine enjoyment to the way oh, Fiji are playing. Fiji are having and a it's great time. it's difficult for the spectator not to get caught up in that, isn't it? But even when Fiji fall behind, even when Wales get ahead in this game, Fiji have this kind of like glee about them. Yeah. They have yeah, this for joy. Sure. You know, it's like when you're playing a game of touch and it's really competitive and even. Like, yeah, no, I'm really into this, you know. Or how much more fun it is to play FIFA when it's someone that's your skill level rather than yeah, battering yeah. a kid. You know? For They've sure. They've got that element of they've gone from like oh this is one of our all-time greatest performances to oh this is a proper game now this is fun and it makes you think that Ili Tambua as the head coach for Fiji has probably passed that down yeah you know that is probably something all week he's been just 
raring to go and he's just been bigging them up and just saying lads we're about to rip Wales apart and we're going to score 70 tries even if they score more than us which they do but that's it Fiji went out there with very much a you know you score 28 we'll score 29 (laughs) approach yeah or 27 and four penalties yeah and it really pays off for them do you want to have a look at Fiji and the team and let's go through that because it's obviously a very strong Fijian side. There's plenty of players in here who are really well remembered and there's a few who were some of the form players in this World Cup who are slightly less remembered. So on the latter, I'm talking about Asano Naivua on the mm. wing, I think has been excellent this tournament. He gets compared to Rapini Thaudau on the commentary at one point. Yeah, he's that weird player that we talked about in past episodes where he won eight caps all in the same year all in 2007 yeah disappeared off the face of the earth you know went to play for Viadana for a season and then that was kind of the last that was heard of him yeah but he's brilliant all Mm. world cup and especially in this game spoilers Kameli Ratuvu is another player like such a great fullback attacking fullback I would say that he's the blueprint for Tuathuvu who's currently that's interesting um, yeah Fiji's fullback Like, they are such similar players in terms of the way they attack the line. So Rotuvu had scored a try, actually, the previous year for the Pacific Islanders, where he was the starting fullback against Wales. And he'd also scored against Scotland. He was a player that had come in, I think, with a really growing reputation. He signed off the back of that tour for Pacific Islanders for Saracens, where he went on to play 99 games before signing okay. for Zebre. Ah, oh, yes. Where he played the last year of his career before retiring. Okay. Yeah, but he's excellent. He's a really, really good yeah. player. Some of the more remembered names include Akapusi and Gera yes. coming in the back row, who has been phenomenal all tournament. I think Akapusi and Gera is a weird one because he's not remembered for one specific skill because he was just world class at everything. Yeah. Like, you know, I think I probably remembered him as a bit more of a kind of breakdown seven who Agreed, made big yeah. hits and then would blast through breakdowns and get big turnovers. But watching this back and 2011, it makes me realize like, oh no, he was rapid. He was like, he yeah. was such an exciting player and could offload. He was amazing. I think this is the absolute peak of his game. I think actually yeah. once he spends longer in the Premiership, you know, he signed for Gloucester off the back of this World Cup. He'd been playing d- bizarrely for, I mean, so they're called B- Birmingham and Solihull RFC now. At the time, they were called Per Temp Bees. <laughs> like B-E-E-S. Thank you for spelling bees. Wow. Well, not like the bees. sounds like an amazing you know, He was playing for their first yeah. 15, but because <laughs> he's Akapusi bloody Ungera. And then off the back yeah. of his World Cup, signed for Gloucester and tore it up at Gloucester, played 142 games. And that's where I remember playing most of rugby. And he was unreal yeah. for them so often. So but good. I think actually, so good. once he went to play in the Premiership, he became a far more kind of conservative English style seven. And he was still really, yeah. really good at it. But he wasn't as explosive as he was, I think, in this World Cup. Agreed. Agreed. As I say, watching this back, I'm surprised like how many tries he scores and sets up and how many like massive breaks he makes. But he's box office. Yeah, no, he's absolutely fantastic. However, right, there's one interesting thing that happens after this World Cup during his first season for Gloucester, where he, I don't know if you know about this, he had a period where he missed a couple of games and came back whilst still suffering from Bell's palsy. No, I never knew that. Which is, you know, for anyone aware, is a kind of facial paralysis syndrome. Jesus. Which prevents your ability to control facial muscles in sort of like at least a third or half of your face. That's insane. And he just played through it, no problem. So, yeah, so he had like two weeks off and apparently symptoms typically come on over like 48 hours. It comes on very quickly. It can be triggered by all sorts, including, you know, a number of things that can be taken in, in rugby or 
pregnancy and that's you know probably possible for him he could do anything else yeah but yeah so while still recovering he went back into full training and then played against exeter where he scored there's being hard and then there's that yeah that's taking well, the he, piss he couldn't move half his face and he still what? played he's ridiculous man like he's ridiculous it must impact your communication but i guess i don't know actually yeah can you i don't know how much it affects your eyes and your vision yeah and blinking as yeah. well like jesus christ He's ridiculous. No, he man. really, really is. One last fact about Akaputi and Guerra. His cousin, Lydia, also played netball for Fiji. Was a real star for Fiji in the 2019 Netball World Cup. Was arguably wow. their best player. So, and of course, his cousins on the other side are Lagi and Russ Tuima. Yes. England international Lagi Tuima, who is an absolute baller. Russ Tuima plays number eight for Exeter. Very good ball carrier, like as you'd expect, having the similar genes to Akapusi and Guerra. Uh, yeah, Lucky Tuima is like one of the most exciting players in World Rugby. If you, haven't, if you haven't seen her play, check out Harlot's package because she is just incredible. Yeah, uh, like a goal kicker, best passer, like insanely fast. She's just amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So Akapusi and Guerra, I just think he is the kind of star of this Fijian team, which we're not doing yeah. a Fijian leaving party this week. But if we no. were, I think he's the name that will keep coming up. He's the image for me when you're looking at this Virginian team. Because they make a lot yeah. of changes. So I didn't really necessarily appreciate it at the time. They rest basically the full team for that Australia game in order yeah, to come in yeah. here six yeah. days I'd later. I say they have an eye on this. Fresh in, they've got Moses Raluni. They've got Nicky Little. They've got Cesar Kayamabole. They've got all these guys and they are all they all look so well conditioned and yeah. ready to play 80 minutes, which they do. Yeah. Even players like Sunakoto, who we haven't really talked about, yeah, but I think he he plays really well in this game and over this full tournament. I think, yeah, and there is a bit of an issue for Fiji over their kind of front row over their scrum is kind of their biggest problem during this game. Yes, and yet the no work doubt. those forwards are putting in around the park makes up for it, for sure. Sunakoto, you mentioned there, he carried on playing for Fiji until 2017. That's how long it took for him to retire. I think of him as a 2011 era player. Yeah. Because he went to 2015 after that. And don't get me wrong, he was hanging by 2015. But, like, in this era, he's in his element. I've got a lot of time for a player who signed for a Pro Day Duck Club on his first professional contract and then just stays there. Yeah. Then just stays there. Just stayed at Narbonne, played 200 games in Narbonne. And you know what? Good on him. Good on him. Had a very brief spell before that with London Welsh where he played about two games. And then when, no, I have found my level, I will stay here punching second rows. <laughs> Good on you, Sunea. A word quickly as well for Captain Moses Raluni. Yeah, who he's fantastic. Is what a tournament he has. Speaking of people with talented cousins. Wait, who's his cousin? Wasali Sarevi. Oh, I did not know that. Yep. Yep, he's quite good and he is quite talented. Yes, I've heard of him. So his brother was the Fijian scrum half in the 1999 World Cup. So Moses sneaks into the squad just about as a youngster in 1999, then plays in 2003, plays in 2007 here. He retires after the Pacific Islanders tour the following year in 2008. Played for Saracens another year beyond that, where he was based, where he was playing club rugby at the time. He signed off the back of the 2003 World Cup there. He then retires and becomes a backs coach, and he coaches Fiji at the 2015 World Cup, where they again play uh, Wales. I didn't realise he was a coach then. I mean, again, that was a very good Fiji team. Yeah. So no surprise that he did a good job as a skills coach. Yeah. Had a brief spell at Harrow School as well, which I bet oh, paid Christ. him all right. 
You know, like, yeah. as a lad who's grown up in Suva and not come from much, I won't begrudge him coaching Harrow. <laughs> Absolutely not. And teaching Mauro Otoje to catch a ball. Actually, yeah, he would have overlapped with Mauro Otoje being there. Yeah. Yeah. So he probably coached Otoje as a young lad. Wild. But yeah, good on you. Yeah. I'm a big fan of Moses Rolini. Like, Yeah, I just think he's a kind of forgotten legend. And it's a great yeah. thing for him that he got to be a part of this game, the captain for this yeah. game. And he speaks so well after the game as well. Yeah. He deserves the glory here, man. Yeah. Just while we're talking about this Fiji team, I just kind of want to get a little bit carried away as well. I think he is the heartbeat of it. You say yeah. Ungera is like probably the best player, but I do think that everything revolves around Rauluni. Yeah. However, they also have a halfback with him, Nicky Tyrone Little. Yeah, Nicky Little's a strange little player to analyse retrospectively, isn't he? Because we did it in 2011 and analysed that he was so far past his best. Yes. Great player. And he's obviously a legend of Fijian rugby. He was basically the only, like, fly half who could kick that they had yeah. in a generation. Well, because their other option is Seremiah Bai, who's playing 12 in this game. Who, yeah. I mean, very good player. Mm. Not especially reliable and not an especially great kicker of the ball. No, he wasn't a 10. Like, don't give me any of that. I, like, look, he was a 12. I like Saramaya Bay as a 12 an awful lot. Brilliant 12. He yeah. was a player who would sometimes just implode out of nowhere. Yeah. And yeah. he was also a player who did not really enjoy kicking the ball. No. <laughs> but was, you know, about 91 stone. So yes. obviously he could put his foot through the thing. Yeah. There was a very brief period, actually, where Saracens had both Moses Raluini and Nicky Little, and they could have been halfbacks together. Oh, really? They play together as the Fijian halfbacks in the Premiership. Then bloody Wigglesworth and Farrell got there, honestly, knocked them out of the shirts. Honestly, what's that all about? Yeah, not having that, not having that. There's another link here, right? In that Nicky Little also goes off in his post-career to coach a posh school in England, where he becomes Canterbury High School head coach. I remember what. Oh, wait, yeah. He was there for quite a long time, yeah. wasn't he? I remember watching an interview on. Remember Total Rugby? That show that had like Rugby. Matt Gitto do his little like cardboard cutout kick. Yeah. Yeah. I remember them having a segment of, where's Nicky Little now? And him talking about, oh, he was coaching in Canterbury. And he was like, oh, then I found out it was the other Canterbury, not the Canterbury I knew. And it was good banter. Yeah. It's always good because they used to always do like loads of great banter and then it's really poorly dubbed into English by that guy who goes, yes. Oh yes. I got my first cap for Singapore when I was aged one. It was a great experience and I really like the group of players that we play with. We don't have much money in the union. So we're hoping that when we do our away match against Malaysia, that we will find some funding and pick up some new supporters. Should we look at the Welsh team slightly reluctantly? I think we have to. We have to. The headline of this is, of course, that Gareth Thomas is in as captain Mm. for his 100th and final cap. Not that he knew it was his final cap at this point, but... He knew it could have been. Yes. He had just recovered from a cold or was allegedly potentially still suffering from a cold. So this is the whole thing, right? So Gareth Thomas, Alfie, as he's known very widely within Wales due to his resemblance to a cartoon alien that he does actually look like he says the point that like his own mother calls him alfie he answers to alfie quickly answers to gareth you know it's just it was it was who he was i think his husband's the only person who calls him gareth (laughs) which is about right yeah so this is the other thing about alfie is he had just around this time come out as gay to the squad and wouldn't come out publicly for another two years 2009 he came out publicly as the first in any team sport the first male 
player professional yeah. player to come out as gay while still playing which is amazing and you know yeah like obviously alfie did a pretty horrendous thing about yes. a year ago which is horrible to sell it and short, but yes yeah i think a large part of that is alfie just being this bizarre character who doesn't really think about things properly he's not the sharpest knife in the drawer but also he's like widely beloved for a reason and that is that yeah. he loves being welsh he loves rugby he is one of the Welsh people you will ever meet and i think yeah. all of that go like when he's making a decision on something such as you know the the, the thing he did in not telling his part that he was hiv positive before yeah. you know he thinks about how proud he is to be welsh and then he thinks about how much he loves rugby then he thinks specifically about the 2005 grand slam and then he thinks for a while about Cardiff City, and then he thinks and about the decision. Being he's proudly gay as well. Yeah, yeah, that, that yeah, and that's then in he, the list. Somewhere. Then he thinks about the decision he's making, right? And yes. sometimes when he's got only got about half an hour to make a decision, that all gets lost in thinking about Cardiff City for a while. And I'm not making excuses. I'm just trying to like Alfie's such a particular character, and what he did was absolutely horrendous. Yeah, it was abhorrent. It was yeah. absolutely abhorrent. But, but I don't think like, it was done with malice. I think it was done as just him being like... I don't think it matters, but yes, no, I, I no, completely agree with agreed, you. Completely agreed. No, and it's like, the the thing is, I think he, he's always been lost in his own little world. And actually, yeah. when you look back on it, you go, well, was it only a matter of time before he hurt someone with it? And he yeah, really yeah, did in a reprehensible I think that's way. fair to say. Yes. Do you remember the period where he was a pundit on Scrum 5? Yes. And literally every single thing he said was just, I love being Welsh, right? I love this country. And I'm so passionate about this team. And then Ross Harris would go like, okay, I was asking who should start at fullback next week, Gareth. And then he would go, yes, but I have to tell you, I love being Welsh. I got a hundred caps for my country, right? I worked my fucking bollocks off. Alfie, it's 6pm. You're not allowed to say that. Of course, on that subject, so the 2007 version of Gareth Thomas was a very worthy captain Mm. of Wales. Like, he had such love for his country and his teammates. And as I say, he wasn't the brightest. One of his most famous quotes as a rugby captain was, two words, boys, don't fucking panic. (laughs) When he was Lions captain in 2005. But he is... A very worthy captain here and to run up for his hundredth cap this is a very special occasion for him and i don't think gareth thomas plays terribly in this game which i can't say of many welsh sure. players here i won't go as far as saying he was very good because again there's a responsibility that lies mm. on the whole team especially when you have to when you accept the captain's armband you accept criticism on behalf of the team right and he yeah. does that very well at the end of the game i will add so Alfie here becomes the first man to ever win 100 caps mm. for Wales. He becomes the seventh man to ever win 100 caps, one game after Alessandro Troncon, who'd just done it a week earlier. And I think there's a you know huge occasion. There are now eight people who have won 100 caps for Wales, seven of them since Alfie. And interestingly, two of them are playing in this game as well. Two others are in this starting 15. Interesting. So you've got Alan Jones and Martin Williams. You do indeed. You also have Michael Phillips, who has 99 caps on the bench. Did Stephen Jones not get 100 caps? Sorry, Stephen Jones got 100 caps. Yeah, Stephen yeah. Jones, sorry. You have three players uh, okay. in this team who also want to win 100 caps. Oh, and Geffen Jenkins. So you have four. Oh, wow. You have half wow. of the Welsh Centurions in this starting yeah. team, which is absurd that they go on to lose this game. Because that's another really interesting thing, right? Is that Alan Wynne-Jones is in this team. And every time right. he comes on, I'm going, this 
feels weird because like so there was a, a Wales online piece from the 2019 World Cup right before Wales played Fiji in that tournament on where are they now for all of the players from this tournament right every single one of them is coaching including one of them coaching the national team apart from Alan Jones who is still the squad captain <laughs> and would be playing for them four years later like, How insane is that? The fact that it's the same Alan Wynne Jones is what bugs me. Like it feels like it's two separate guys. Like, I knew that Alan Wynne Jones played in two thousand and seven, continued on mm. right through to you know obviously just messes out on twenty twenty three. However, it's still bizarre to see him and go. It's the same Alan Wynne Jones. Every time he got point. the ball in this game, I was thinking like, oh, but it's not really Alan Wynne Jones. Yeah, is exactly. It? And the fact he played like he played eighty minutes in this. Yeah, and that's something that he went through. And literally, he was playing for Wales this year. Yeah. So the other, I think, interesting note is Ian Evans starts. Yes. So Ian Evans, who obviously was a really strong ally partner to Alan Wynne Jones for a lot of his career, sure. I think was kind of yeah. the second row pairing he got put with for the first half of his career. Then I think Adam Beard yeah. came in the second half, in the latter half, sure. kind of took that mantle. But like, those two went but, on a Lions tour together eight years uh, they uh, won the, six years after this. They won a Six Nations and a Grand Slam together. Yeah. They made the debuts in the same game. You know, they kind of came through at the Ospreys at the same time. They played in the same Wales under-20s team, or the 21s team as it was at the time, that won a Grand Slam. They were kind of thick as thieves. They were, you know, really close friends. Alan Wynn was a very intense one, and Yanto was a kind of, as he was known, Ian Evans, the kind of jokey and more juvenile one, who infamously did a series on the Ospreys website called Yanto's Yak, where he would interview oh, the other players. Oh, that was great. God, that was amazing. Bring back Yanto's Yak. It was really good fun. They could have done it with Bradley Davis. They were missing a chance there. Yeah. Just bring back Yanto just to yeah. to do it. He would just... ask every single player what came first, the chicken or the egg. Yes. And Ryan Jones said the chicken because I think it evolved. And that blew my mind as like a 12-year-old. <laughs> and I realised that's realized... exactly what happened. I've just realised. That's where you got that fact for, for Nicky Walker World it Cup. It was indeed. It was, it was from Yanto's Yak. I fact? wondered how you knew whether Nicky Walker... What was the chicken and the egg? I wonder where you got that from. Yeah, it was from his Yanto's Yak. Yeah, yeah, he was in the box. It was a whole thing. Oh, I remember that episode. That was a good episode. So, yeah, Ian Evans, coming into this game, had not started the rugby match in 10 months. Wow. It was kind of a controversial inclusion. They included him despite him being injured because he'd been on really good form for the Ospreys leading into this and okay. was such a pairing with Alan Wynne-Jones. He came off the bench in Wales's previous game against Japan. However, he hadn't started yet in a very long time. He was expected to be back in time for the Australia game. Didn't quite make that. You know, came off the bench against Japan then started here. So it's a bit of a controversial selection. He goes on to play 65 minutes. I think he plays pretty well, generally. Yeah you know, kind of gives Wales more of a line-out focus, was a really good line-out forward, is a kind of forgotten figure, I think, in Welsh rugby because he spent yeah, his entire career... Yeah, He spent his entire career next to Alan Wynne-Jones. Alan Wynne-Jones did not spend his entire career next to Ian Evans. That's it. That's it. I'm glad that at least Ian Evans went on a Lions tour. I think that does give him that kind of pedigree that he deserves. Yeah. Went on to retire in 2017, having played for Wales until 2016. Yeah, went to 2013 Lions tour where he missed out on the test matches but was really good. Yeah, I think very, very highly of Ian Evans. And yeah, as you say, outside Wales, it's probably not a name it means lots of people. And that's fine. Yeah. And that's fine. Every nation has those, you know? Yeah. Elsewhere in the Welsh team, we have mm. Alex Popham playing his penultimate game for Wales. Yes. Obviously played Gatlin's first game in charge, and Gatlin discarded him for being a penalty machine and never picked him again. Colin Charvis as well in the back row. Yes. Also playing his last game for Wales, which is amazing the number of those you find. Yeah. Uh, Stephen Jones starts at 10 with James Hook coming in at 12, 
with Tom Shanks yes. outside him. That been a kind of back and forth of which ones they pick, Jones or Hook, until they put them together against Japan and then stick with it here. They decided that was apparently working. They couldn't have not picked Stephen Jones no. <laughs> after the Canada game. And Matthew Reese kind of wins the battle at Hooker. Him and T. Reese Thomas have been in and out, you know, kind of very much jostling for that shirt in both the Six Nations before this and then this World Cup. And uh, Matthew yeah. Reese wins out there. Yeah. And I think the other one that there's a conversation over, even though I wouldn't say it's controversial, is Mark Jones starts on the wing yes. instead of David James. Or even like Tom Shanklin could have ended up shifting out there. But yeah, Mark Jones, very solid player, has gone on to become a really good coach since. Not known as like a flashy finishing winger, but very solid defensively and, you know, runs his lines well. Yeah, was fantastic as a 20s coach for Wales. Yes. This World Cup just gone. Where Wales were terrible in the Six Nations, then he really turned them around. And yeah. by all accounts, is off to the Ospreys. Apparently he took a session there last mm. week, though you didn't hear it from me. The other note, actually, on Colin Chavis. Colin Chavis wins his 93rd cap here, which makes him Wales' most cap forward of all time, overtaking Gareth Llewellyn. Of course, of course. A record that would go on to be broken by Geffen Jenkins and then by Alan Wynne-Jones. Okay, yeah, yeah, fair enough. Colin Chavis massively deserves that accolade. Would have liked to go out in a completely different fashion to this. Absolutely. But yes, we have to move forward to the game, don't we? There's, We can only avoid it for so long. And I've just started looking back at my notes and... The nerves in Wales are very evident from the off. Yes. Like the very first thing they do is Alex Popham fumbles a ball that goes into Delasau's hands. And spoiler alert, Delasau's hands are the last place Wales could want the ball to be. <laughs> yeah. Which is a lesson they will very much learn. We also yes. have the World Cup here at the two mm. teams run out, which is the closest Wales will get to it for a very long time. <laughs> Yeah. And the two teams line up for the anthems. You can see Wales are nervy as they run out, where yeah. Fiji, I don't think, are. Fiji looked very laid back until I think as the anthem begins, and I really loved watching the Fijian anthem here. Yes. Because it starts as a very normal rendition. Then as it goes on, their passion kind of grows. And by the second half, all the players are crying. All of them have got their kind of faces down away from the screen so you can hide the fact that they're really emotional. The anthem is being sung completely differently. There's so much more stress on everything. And by the time they get the Phoebe a moment later, the Fijian team are really, really on edge of like emotion of knowing what this means i think is built yeah. since they arrived on the pitch and from the bits you can find you know they talk about having a very like laid back walk into this game and they're very much like you know this is we've got everything to gain we've got nothing to lose here no one's expecting us to do this but we can go out we can have a chuck about we can you know have a really lovely time fiji are the one men's rugby team where you can guarantee that someone will cry in the anthem like every single time with that there was always at yeah. least somebody i don't know though i feel like most of the time with argentina rather than it being a guarantee there's always at least a group of lads in the crowd who are crying with argentina whereas with fiji there's always at least one player but here as you say it's a load of them and I think it's really impressive that they channel that correctly into the Thimby, yeah. that they don't just emotionally break down and pull out a shit Thimby, because no, that is powerful as. Yeah. And so you also have Iveli Tabua, the coach in the stands, is starting to get quite emotional as well, I think. He's great value, Tambua. He is. He is. So he'd replace Wayne Pivak, funnily enough, oh, right before this course, tournament. Yes. yes. When Wayne Pivak left very suddenly, very suddenly resigned right before the World Cup. Uh, Tambu was brought in as one of his assistants previously, who played for Fiji in the 99 World Cup. 
and for Australia in the 95 World Cup and was brought in fairly late and went on to have a fantastic campaign here, was very widely beloved by the squad. Then, of course, a few months later, in 2009, gets sacked for off-field incidents. Okay, that has the vibe of a weapon. Yes, I'm not sure what happened, but it involved some off-field incidents. Okay, we'll leave that there for the time being, I reckon. Indeed, indeed. I am hoping, much like the Fijian fullback from 87, he got in a machete fight in the jungle. <laughs> oh my god. Yes, Ete Aki, the Tongan fullback. Yes. There we go. That is lodged in my brain somehow. I should forget that and remember something a bit more important. But yes, he lost his arm in a machete fight in the jungle. Listen back to any episode on Tonga in 1987 and you will get the full story. Thank you very much. A great stat that the commentator brings up right before the game, right? Who is, of course, Nottingham's own, the proudest, Martin Gilliam. Indeed. He brings up, Wales have lost their last pool match in five straight World Cups (laughs) going into this. And also bear in mind, this is the sixth World Cup. (laughs) Yeah. That's a hell of a stat. <laughs> it is. Like, he could have saved that stat by going, this is like the 19th World Cup or something. You know, don't worry, lads, we've been doing World Cups since the early 1900s. But no, no, oh, they've been doing World Cups for 20 years. Well, this was, yeah, the 20th anniversary of the World Cup and therefore the 20th anniversary of Superboot and Fiji qualifying, right? They yes. mention two or three times that Fiji qualified in 87. They never once mentioned bloody Superboot. They really I think that's a disgrace. But we are making up for that. Yeah. By the way, Mm. uh, super boot, super boot, super boot. Uh, I will add, this whole tournament, Simon Mannix has been a bit of a shit show on comms, but he's brilliant in this game. By and large, yeah. I think there's one moment that annoyed me, but otherwise I think he's great. He's constantly reminding us how brilliant Fiji are. And obviously he's extremely biased, but so is literally everybody. Yes. And I think an occasion like this, it adds to the occasion having a biased commentary. Like, in 2015, I'm... when Carl Hesketh went over, do you, want to, do you want us to be neutral about the fact that fucking South Africa have lost that game to Japan? Nah, not a chance. And I think also, as he says at the time, as he says at full time, this is a victory for rugby. Yes, right? he does and pull the is. whole rugby's the true winner. And he is biased towards rugby. And I am 100% okay with that. I'm all for it. Because every commentator should be biased towards rugby. They should want what's best for the game, for the sport, for the bloody egg that is the massive, massive egg, right? Yes. I don't care. Don't Think be... of William Wavellis. Yeah. Like, if I was a South African commentator commentating on Heskov's try, as you say, I would want to be excited, and I would be excited, yeah. because I think that is the thing. You know, you want to be excited for the game, for the occasion, for the viewer, for the neutral rather than for your nation and for your particular biases. You know, you want to yeah. always be biased towards rugby. That's at least my approach. That's my thinking of my approach to uh, rug- rugby, which is a sport. You are right, though. That is what Simon Mannix is doing. Of like Warwickshire. He's so passionate about Fiji winning this because it's a great occasion rather than because he's geographically from near to Fiji, yes. you know? Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. 
connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. So, we get to the kickoff. We do, and... As I say, that first 10 minutes is weirdly dominated by Wales. Yes. So I have it in my notes at one point from about 10 minutes in. A, how do Wales lose this? And B, mm. how are Wales only 3-0 up? Yeah. I think those, and two, those questions two questions probably answer themselves. Yeah, the, the answer to one question answers the other. Yes. Because... Spoiler alert, this is the only period of, like, pure dom... Not the only... No, I think there's two. I think there's two periods there's of... There's two. Well, we should tendency... There's two. ...in this game. But this one... But they're BG's both weather. very short-lived, is the thing. Yeah. If they capitalised on both, then I think we're looking at Wales scraping out of the pool here. But, like, Stephen Jones makes a really nice break early on, where the defence leave a gap for him, and Stephen Jones, he's no mug, gets through it, links up with Tom Shanklin, who does a little sidestep. bloody, okay, so I was, this was the moment I knew I was in trouble, because when Shanklin makes his break, I am up on my feet screaming, give it Shanks. Yeah. And he butchers the pass. He waits way too long, gives it right when the defender's drifted onto him. They've eaten up too much space, there's too much cover around, and it bombs the try. This was a definite try if he gives the early ball, but he didn't. And at that moment, I knew I was in trouble because I was emotionally invested in this game. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I never had hope on that because I kind of thought like, well, Mark Jones isn't going to score here, is he? Like, I just get this feeling that even if Shanks gives the early ball and it's perfectly timed and Wales have perfectly executed the overlap, I just don't see any scenario where Mark Jones is skidding Kameli Levratuvu. So (laughs) even though he had like five metres to go to the line, Right, you're completely right in your assessment of the non-try, but also I think I'm completely right in mind. I think it's one of those weird things I, no, where I, I just didn't see it. I am jealous of you, and I wish I could have felt that way. Yeah, but the thing is, I then got emotionally invested ten seconds later because Martin Williams pops up at ten, throws this brilliant miss ball mm. that goes all the way wide, and Shane Williams gets the ball on the edge. And the thing about this podcast is Shane Williams is my weak spot. Because whenever he gets the ball, I will always take an opportunity to shout, go on Shane again. Mm. And he does this really nice sidestep and he sees off De La Salle. And you're like, oh, mate, De La Salle's not having a game here, is he? He's going to make so many mistakes. It's the only mistake he makes all game. And Shane goes for the corner and unfortunately just gets put into touch by, I think it's Divua? Rambeni, sorry, Rambeni. Fiji make a hash to the line out, however, and Wales win a penalty very shortly afterwards. Yes. Which they decide to kick, they go for goal. Stephen Jones nails. Interesting yeah. decision. Yeah, they turned one down a minute ago where Nugget took a quick tap as well. There was also a bit where there was a bit of a fight. Chris Horseman punches somebody in the face and gets away yes. with it. And Alan Wynne Jones removes uh, Kayama Bolle's shirt, which is fun. As Simon Mannix points out in commentary, Chris Horseman is punching one guy and holding off another, which is <laughs> amazing multitasking. Yeah. Talk about the prop being the cornerstone of your team. Yeah, man. it's 
eating your pie and downing your pint at the same time. It's exactly. glorious. It's, it's glorious brilliant. prop work. Yeah, it's brilliant. And like, here's the thing. Chris Horseman, brilliant game in the scrum, brilliant game in fight, bit of a mare in the rest of the game, right? Yeah, yeah. But hey, what more can you want? When your prop is fighting two people at once and dominating scrums, I am okay with them having an absolute shocker in all other areas. 100%, 100%. It's like I always have so much respect for a prop who can get dominated in the scrum and not care about it and still be a ball See, around I the pitch. See, I don't. I have no respect for that. No. Do you not? No. Do your job. Do you no, job. no, no, I do. I do. But if you're getting dominated, like Penny Ravi before he got really good, right? Mm. Think about it. He would always get dominated in the scrum and just not give a shit and still like do yeah, incredible no. like prop shit. No, no. Be ashamed. You're not doing your job. Be bloody ashamed of yourself. That's what so I you're saying. Say. He, sh- he should have dropped the ball every time it came near him because he was doing such a bad job of the scrum. I'm saying he should have carried in a straight line instead of doing fancy offloading and line breaks. <laughs> okay. He should have just like carried and flopped to ground. He should have been meeting, making at most one meter carries. Okay, sure, sure. But yeah, fair assessment of Chris Hortzman regardless. Yeah. Then, yeah, Wales, after kicking that penalty, still look really good. Shanklin puts in this really long kick. Yeah. Which Naivua drops into touch in his own 22. And like Wales well, have an attacking line out. This is the really interesting thing. So Nigel Davis, who was the worst attack coach at the time, went on to coach the Scarlets and then Gloucester for a while. Sam Davis's dad, for anyone that knows the Welsh region rugby at the minute, said we really wanted to play with structure because that is the way to play Fiji. But I also felt we could outscore them on tries. The challenge was to do that and limit them at the same time. He then said of what actually happened. It was utter rugby bedlam. <laughs> which I think sums it up. Right. That's a great how it started versus how it's going thing. <laughs> yes. So you see that in the first 10 minutes, right? Wales are playing with enormous, enormous structure. They're kicking really well. They're trusting those kind of tactics they come into the game with. Yeah. And it's funny because I think the narrative around this game is Wales started playing the way Fiji wanted them to. Yes. You know, they buy into the Fijian style of play. They see Fiji playing this loose game and they go, we can play a loose game as well. And there was a t- tactical mistake, whatever. I don't think that's what happens. I certainly don't think it's what happens at this stage. I think there is a part of the game where that does start to happen. But I don't think that's a general narrative on the game. Okay, maybe we'll maybe we'll get onto this as we go. Yeah. But I actually, this game did not suit, did not fit the kind of narrative I was led to believe is what happens in this game. Agreed, agreed. So yeah, we're playing with enormous structure. They get another shot at goal and Stephen mm. Jones hits the post. Yes, Shanklin sort of chases the kick and knocks it on, unfortunately. But Fiji really struggles to, to exit. There is a in that for the fact that, yes, Shanklin knocks it on chasing. He's the only Welsh player chasing that kick. He is, yeah. And that is yeah. a problem in itself. Yeah, that's nothing against Shanks at all. No. Fiji really struggle to exit. Their discipline's really shoddy, I think, in this first 10-15 minutes. Yeah. Like they're constantly giving away really stupid penalties, which are needless, and giving Wales opportunities. Though I think it's an interesting kind of element in the, the alchemy of this game is both teams' discipline is terrible. Yeah, it is. But it, it is. allows the other team chances out of nowhere to attack. You yeah. know, it gives them lineouts, it gives them position, it gives them turnovers that allow them to play. And that's part of why this game is magic, is because it is well refereed by yeah. uh, Stuart Dickinson of Australia. Yeah. He, I don't know why, it feels like he should always be described as Stuart Dickinson of Australia. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel that. But it is also, yeah refereed in a spirit that understands is like anti-empathy right like Mm. by killing these players for doing stupid things you're giving the opposition players a chance to be creative it's like a weird weird kind of like element that i think really adds to what the game becomes 
Because, yeah, yeah as you I say, Fiji just burns initially terrible. Then, like, Alex Popham and Chris Horseman go, hold my beer. Actually, no, they don't. Yes. I think they down their beer and then start playing off it. Yeah. And it just becomes this kind of, say, to borrow Nigel Davis's phrase, bedlam. Yes, indeed. And as Fiji are struggling to exit at this stage, Wales do really try and attack them. Stephen Jones goes, sees this overlap outside him and semi-ignores it in a way that would really wind up Jiffy. But I get the option, even though he has ignored an overlap outside him of like five or six men, and goes for his kind of cross-field chip to the corner. And you look at that as an option and go, oh, I can see what he's going for there. I can see why he's going for that chip kick, because there definitely is space back there. Yeah. And then it cuts to the behind angle, and you realise the foot race is Alan Wynne-Jones against Villamoli de la Salle. <laughs> yes. And look, Alan Wynne-Jones had much more pace in those days than he does nowadays. Yes. But. But. But he's not Villamoli de la Salle, is he? No. He makes a hell of an effort, to be fair. He does. He does. It's not a terrible option by Stephen Jones. Mm. And yet, you know, I don't think it's necessarily the correct option. No, it's far from it. But the interesting thing is that kind of brings the end on Wales's little spell. Yeah. You know, We've the flown period of, of dominance. They have two try scoring opportunities. They blow both of them. They have one of a shot at a penalty and they miss it. They hit the post. Yes. And that leaves us in this situation where Wales are 3-0 up, having had enough chances to be 20-0 up. Yeah. yeah. After 10, 12 minutes. And they're not. They're 3-0 ahead. Yeah. yeah. And it's really interesting when we get to Fiji's first real line break from halfway that gets them into the 22. Because it feels so against the run of play. And it just becomes the run of play. Yeah. Right? So, Seru Rambini does this 1-2 with Ratuvu on the edge. And that's the first moment where you realise, like, oh, this is Fiji in space. This yeah. is, like, all of the cliches now apply to what Fiji regularly do. Naivua has this little c- cut inside. Rambeni does this sidestep, and they recycle the ball. And the whole thing, it's like watching Fiji train yeah. at this point, because there is that little resistance from Wales. Wales have no line speed whatsoever and no, no. real attempt to, like, double up and mark them properly. And I there's think... no slowing the ball down in the ruck either? No. Wales defend them in the same way they defended Japan. And I think it was really effective against Japan because Japan was sending like incredibly patterned and incredibly fast, but like one-off runners, right? Where like yeah. another player was running off another player, but they weren't looking to send someone on the shoulder. They were looking to, you know, give a pass to someone 15 metres away. And that was really effective there. And Canada, likewise, I think, because they were far more direct. And Canada actually had Wales' number for at least the first hour, really. Yeah. Until that, there's two Shane Williams tries, right? one after another yeah here wales are in attempting to defend the same way they have in the rest of the tournament defending incredibly passively accidentally when fiji yeah. are sending runners who can offload and runners who can change direction at the last second without any real pressure and line speed and pressing one of the reasons why fiji are historically the greatest sevens team on the planet is because you rarely in sevens or not rarely but the majority of the time mm. in sevens players will be given one-on-one scenarios because there's that much space yeah. on the field, right? And the Fijian players just inherently, for whatever reason, are the best at offloading and running an open space in the world, right? Mm. And if you get a weak shoulder on them, just there are so many Fijian players, not just kind of stereotype, but who can put in just sumptuous offloads, right? Yeah. And Wales are playing this game defensively like a game of sevens where you just happen to have 15 men on the field. 
and yes. they're constantly just, they're going for essentially man marking Fiji the whole way out rather than having a structured defense that's getting off the line and trying to mm. force errors and stuff. They're just seeing a guy in front of them and just going right, okay, you're the nearest person, you tackle him. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that when we look back on the quotes about the game, right? The Welsh attack coach said they want to play a structured game. The Welsh defensive coach said he was doing nothing differently. Okay. How unsurprising is that? Yeah. You know, he has just given Fiji an invitation to constantly change their lines of running and make line breaks. They do it constantly. They do it at will half the time. Yeah. You know, so many times you see like Sarah Mayabai or Sarah Rambeni go for like a dummy in step and you think he's taking the wrong, wrong mm. option there and he hasn't because he just ran into somebody and created a gap manually rather than running into the pre-existing space. Yeah. The other interesting thing about it, though, where was of this era, the defensive coach was Rob McBride, who was doubling up his forwards and defence. Okay. So perhaps goes on to have a good career with Warren Gatland and then with Leinster as a forwards coach, not perhaps known as a defence coach. No. I think the defence was kind of split up a bit between him yeah, and sure. a little bit Nigel Davis as well. But It was much less thought of as an important part of rugby, having a defence coach, wasn't it? Which is strange, isn't it? At this it? stage. It's mental. Yeah. Such an important part of the game. And hence why, you know, right after this, Sean Edwards comes in and where was the defence changes completely overnight. Yeah, he revolutionises the whole thing. But it's the the thing he said of like, I don't care if you've never blitzed before, you're a blitzing team now. And Wales yeah. look like they've yeah. never blitzed before in this game. Yeah. Wales' defence is so passive. And when you compare it to the 2008 Grand Slam, which I know very well, because it was such a big, significant rugby moment for me, I've watched yeah. all of that back very regularly. Wales' defence is night and day that you think there's like 10 years of evolution between them. You know, you think there's a lot longer than one campaign's difference. Yeah, one pre-season, essentially. Yeah. yeah. Because no, Wales' defence looks unfit. Yeah. Like it looks passive and bored and like there's not really tactics to it. You know, it's like... I think you're right, actually. It, 10 minutes into this game, it looks like a defence does 70 minutes into a test match. Yeah. And it is telling. It's the first thing that Gareth Thomas says after the game. Once he's given his, you know, I love being Welsh. I love Cardiff City. I think it's absolutely amazing when you have a Welsh cake and there's enough raisins in it to bite into and it's properly gooey. Once he's done all of that, he then says our defence was not up to standard. And those are his words. Yeah. And that is very much true because it's not. Yeah. However, we're like, I think we've got, we're, we're doing... We're dancing anti, around the subject here. The anti-anti-Simon Mannix approach, right? We need yeah. to talk about what a great day this is for rugby. Because from a Fijian perspective, that break is incredible. And from it a is. rugby perspective, that is My bloody exceptional. Good God, Sarah Rambeni can play, can't he? He had an absolute mare against Japan, bless mm. him. He dropped basically every ball that came his way, apart from one where he set up a try. But here, he is on fire. Virtually every single touch he has in the first half, either is him making a break or him offloading to somebody who makes a break off him. He so has Tom Shanklin in his pocket here. Oh, absolutely. It's ludicrous. So, Rambini was at Leicester at this point, mm. and looked as, as a very good player. I don't know if anyone ever saw him as good as he was in this game. Yeah. Where he yeah. is absolutely phenomenal. Every yeah. touch he makes is gold. Every touch he makes is dangerous. Everything he does is basically breaking the Welsh line right open, like it's a cream cracker that you're trying to get inside, which is what you do with cream crackers. It's just, it's absolutely insane, his ability to just break a line at will, just break yeah. Wales open at will. 
Yeah. Him and Saramaya Bai in that midfield, mm. they read off each other so incredibly well. And I think part of that is because Wales are so passive in defence that they both know as long as you just pick a line to run, you will make a break because they just learn that so quickly. Yeah. But I think that that says a lot about how they managed to adapt to this game because they weren't able to do that constantly against Japan or against no. Australia or against Canada. Whereas here they are, they are both on fire. It's a joy to watch them both. So if you look at that kind of passage, you've got Nicky Little kind of gets himself out of the way, which I enjoy greatly. Mm. And Rambeni slots in at 10. And like the impact he has instantly, he does this kind of like lovely arc. He gets on the outside of Stephen Jones, who's very much just like, as you said, man marking him while Shanklin watches everyone outside. They're not really connected at all. By the time Stephen Jones goes to adapt to follow Rambeni, Shanklin and him are completely different ways of doing completely different things. So my buy runs like a glorious, glorious dummy line that both of them buy. Shanklin manages to shift off last second, but it's not before Rituvu's kind of entered the line, who like takes his short ball and immediately offloads it back to Rambeni. God, it's lovely, isn't it? And yeah, Rambeni like- then instantly frees it right out and hits Nevua. It's just like it's a glorious sequence of handling that doesn't look logical. It looks like something about it is incredible. Yeah, every single touch somebody has is better than the last person's, which is just incredible. And yeah, they recycle the ball so quickly. There's so little resistance, as I say, from Wales, mm. and they get the ball to Akaputi and Gera, who stood at first receiver. Mm. And this is a huge mismatch. What we see here. It's Akabusi and Guerra against James Hook. And yes, I just said a forward against a back is a mismatch and not in a I'm going to bowl you over kind of a way. Because Ungera's feet mm. against, you know, again, like a quite a passive defender like James Hook, certainly in this game was. Mm. It's such a clear cut opportunity. Yeah. It's such an easy step. Because Hook mm. kind of, uh, you're not, I don't think he's quite sure what he's doing defensively. Where no. he initially ties into the ruck. He kind of comes in and has a look at the ruck and is like, oh, that's nice. And he, you're having a nice time. So, you know, as a word of Matthew Reese, he's like, oh, you know, how's it going? You know, what are you doing after the game? Yeah, I was thinking about um, standing in the car park and watching our coach get sacked. What about you? <laughs> and then he realizes like, oh, shit, there's a massive Fijian flying down my channel here. So he kind of rushes up diagonally and makes it mm. such an easy sidestep for Ngera, who just like, wrong. walks he through. doesn't get a lot of help, James No, Huck. no. But it's, I think, simultaneously... It can be a shy attempt by him and also not entirely really be his fault. Sure, 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 sure. No, I think that's fair. I think this entire game is shite by James Hook and also not really his fault. <laughs> yes, yes, more of that later. I also just want a very brief word on Naivua's run in the yes. lead up. Just because it's such a glorious gliding thing and he doesn't finish it. But the way he gets on the inside of Matthew Reese, who like, I think Matthew Reese has an absolutely phenomenal game here. I think he's just like... No, do you? Yeah, I do. I do. I think he is absolutely everywhere and works so hard until he breaks his leg. Uh, fair like, enough. I, I guess thought, I wasn't paying attention to him. I thought he is top five players for Wales, which I realise sounds like faint praise, but I think <laughs> Wales... extremely I think, faint praise. I think Wales have four good players and he is one of them. I think Wales have one player who looks like he's played rugby before and that is Martin Williams. Okay, no. Okay, I'll, look, I'll name my players. Look, I think Martin Williams is fantastic. I think both wingers are very good for Wales, Mark Jones and Shane Williams. Uh, not necessarily in the game, but I think they both play very well. And then I think Matthew Reese is absolutely fantastic. 
Yeah, okay. I thought just his work rate, the amount he does, the amount he kind of keeps up with. So he backtracks in the middle of the field to be the closest person to Naivua when bloody Mark Jones, Tom Shanklin and James Hook were all like stood around looking at him like, God, that's quick, isn't he? When Matthew Reese is the only guy that like, tries to put a tackle on him. Like Matthew Reese is outworking the... He's at one player looking at his team going like, God, he is really pissed off that he's losing this game. Mm. And like he is really pouring it out there rather than standing around looking sorry. I'm sorry I overlooked you, Smiler. I think you're a top player. Yeah. I just like, I think, no, I think Matthew Reese is like the one guy I look at, like, I'm proud of in this team. I will let you die on that hill. Like, that's I will, fair enough. I will. I think Matthew Reese is fantastic in this game. And like, look, okay, he won't come up a man in the match contention. I might mention right. him in passing because like, ultimately, a hooker being very, very hard working for 47 minutes isn't really worth anything in a game like this. jack shit, yeah. does it? Like, but, I'm not going to bring up Martin Williams in my man in the match contention. I think he's, the one Welsh player I look at and go like, mate, you're brilliant. I'm so sorry that you have to be involved in this absolute travesty. <laughs> and yet, like, he wouldn't be anywhere near the podium in terms of who's great for Fiji. So, Well, we'll get to that later on. We'll get to that later. The fact that we're doing anything to discuss Wales in a positive light, such <laughs> as the players that they've had play well, at this point feels extremely untimely. Because we now enter the phase of the game <sighs> where I realise just how much of a shit show this is. This is so much worse than I was led to believe. Yeah. Like, I have been hearing for no exaggeration, you know, 16 years about this being the darkest day in World Rugby history, or certainly up there, you know, up there with loss to Romania in the 90s. Yeah. As one of the worst things that ever happened in World Rugby. I did not realise how bad it was. No. As I say, it's so much worse than I realised. So much worse. Wales, the moment, so that try is soft. That Angera yeah. try feels soft from a Welsh perspective. The defence is undone initially. You know, the initial burst with Rambini and Bai and Rotuvu and then Naivua is lovely and is very Fijian. Everything from there on out, they should be stopping easily. You know, the succession of phases that then lead to Angera getting the ball at first receiver and just going, try. But it's soft, but it's nothing you can't bounce back from. Exactly. And yet, Wales then just implode. I think there's something about the fact that they've gone from being in control and only scoring three points to Fiji having literally 30 seconds of control and scoring seven points in this game that Wales were told over and over again was a banana skin and they could lose and so on and so forth. And they go, it's getting hard, it's getting hard. And they don't bounce back at all. They do quite the opposite. I think it goes from bad to worse to even worse constantly so after this try scored pretty much immediately after Mm. fiji regained possession not long after the kickoff Mm. and what i'm just going to read my notes out here i put in block capitals fiji are shit hot (laughs) yeah i have jesus de la salle wtf yes and now we reach the point in the game where it's the most I famous think, part I of the game. I think this is the most famous image of the game. It's one particular angle of this track. Yes. I There's think it's... a two-second moment that everybody knows. Yeah. It's that shot, and it's the very final whistle going. The two things about this game that are really, really famous. Both yeah. with the Welsh kind of stern faces, but particularly for Fiji jumping up and down and celebrating the entire 15 really Correct. on it. Right. But the other thing is this angle on this try. And it is bloody absurd right from the off. It comes straight from the kickoff. Fiji are... And I had no idea where this try slotted into the game. 
That's the thing. I want to talk about this because that is always branded as the winning try. Yeah. Which obviously any try, I guess, is the winning try. But it, I always assume this would happen in the last pleasing. 10 minutes. Yeah. It's the most, well, I remember going through editing a video before and looking for that in the last minute and realizing, oh, it's the, you know, the Graham Deuce drive over try that we get to is the eventual winning try, as it were, mm. where Dallas Al's try is far earlier. But I didn't yeah. realize the actual context it's in. Yes. That was the most surprising thing because the build up to the try starts and you go, oh shit, what? This is now? <laughs> yeah. Cause it is pretty much straight off the kickoff. Yeah, we're looking yeah. about forty seconds on from where it's they run before. a couple of phases. Yeah, inside their own twenty-two. Off the but it's about a minute between yeah. where it was kicking off and the Dallas Al try starting. Yeah, As I say they go through a couple of phases. They're in their own twenty-two, so you don't really expect they're up to much. Which is your first mistake when you're watching a Fijian rugby team. Yes. Don't get me wrong, but they get the ball wide and once again. Kameli Ratuvu in space is just on fire. Steps in, does this gorgeous like backhanded offload. Yes. The chicken wing, as they call it, and kind of hangs it up for Seru Rambeni running onto it, who again just has this intelligence of how to attack the line. And the thing about Seru Rambeni, we've talked about his offloading ability and his ability to hit a line. The thing we've not really talked about is not only is he fast, but he's absolutely huge. Oh, yeah. Like, he looks like an utter ball ache to try and tackle because even if he was running directly at you, that was a really difficult shot to make, let alone when he had the level of deception and footwork that he did. Yeah. He's just bloody absurd. I don't quite know how he gets that pass he does away. I think he just chucks it in complete hope. Um, yeah. And it somehow lands in by his arms, which is the power of a really great centre combination, I think, is that anticipation that he might do this. So yeah. if Bai takes it, Bai then makes another few metres himself before he's tackled by a Welsh player. It doesn't matter who, because they're all bloody terrible. However, Bai, beautifully, in an incredibly Fijian style, doesn't look if he's got support. He just hangs the ball in the air. Yeah, it's very similar to what Rambeni did previously, right? Like, they've both done exactly the same thing and just chucked the ball thinking, oh, someone's going to get there, you yeah. know? And someone does get there, but not in the way that you think. Because the ball just lands on Villamone de la Salle's foot and he just volleys it along the floor, I guess. But it's a really delicate touch. Where he doesn't just hack it on. He kind of very, very carefully plants it around the Welsh cover. He kind of hacks it out towards the touchline so that he'll be able to get there first instead of the Welsh players that are directly in front of him. It's really gentle, the touch he has on there. It's gorgeous. soccer style he chips it around somebody just really really gently enough that it bounced into his hands it looks so deliberate how can that possibly be deliberate because i think it is yeah and yet i don't know how that's physically possible you must be in the top 0.0001 percent of most talented human beings for that to possibly be deliberate but luckily we are talking about villamoni bloody de la salle we're talking about a fijian team of course they're all within that bracket (laughs) yes exactly especially this guy especially graham jews and graham jews so he regathers it on the wing he looks up he sees back against him, he has Mark Jones and he has Gareth Thomas. And he goes, I fancy this. Yeah. He sticks it on the toe again. Chips the ball into the Welsh in goal. It bounces just over the try line. And you look at this and think, on first viewing, which for both of us was, you know, upwards of a decade ago. Yeah. You think, 
that could very easily go dead but I totally see what he's going for. He's wanting a very specific kind of bounce because the most likely bounce probably isn't that it goes dead, but it just does something normal and just goes into Gareth Thomas's hands and he puts the yeah, ball down. Yeah, it just goes up in the air. Yeah. Which is exactly the bounce he happens to get. Yes. However, he's found himself sandwiched between Mark Jones, who is has a head start of a similar pace to De La Salle and manages to get back first. He is the first in position there. The ball bounces right above Mark Jones's head. He has Gareth Thomas directly behind him, like an inch behind him. And the ball just lands perfectly. The bounce is unbelievably perfect. And we see it captured from this one angle that is right on the spot, right next to the three of them, all leaping for the same ball. And it falls perfectly into De La Salle's hands instead of Jones or Thomas. That's it. That angle that you have for two seconds, it's... One of the best moments of television in rugby. That One you'll of ever the see. great moments of camera direction. You it know, is. It's, like, it it's is. something I've banged on in this podcast before about, but like it is one of the best moments of camera direction in the history of the sport of rugby union. Because and then when you see it again when they go to the TMO and they check everything mm. and it's in slow motion, it's even more glorious. Especially the way that Mark Jones falls over and an Alfie falls over him, but Dallas has a very like graceful in how he grounds the ball. It's Mark Jones being at full stretch, mm. having his arm in the air, and he properly leaps for that ball. And he can't get anywhere near it. And yet De La Salle then goes for pretty much the exact same motion that Mark Jones does, except he catches the ball and grounds it. The ball, as you say, has just chosen De La Salle. Yeah. There's something also nonchalant about the way that De La Salle jumps. Yeah. There's something yeah, far there more is. graceful about the way that like Mark Jones looks like an athlete, like a almost basketballer kind of reaching for the ball like straight above his head, like he's been trained to do it. Whereas De La Salle looks like he's kind of like very carefully, collectedly, like plucking something out of the air so that he can then take it in. It doesn't necessarily look like desperation in the way the two Welsh players do. Yeah, and I think that leads on to what we were saying when we were introducing this try. In the context of the game, Mm. like we've seen this try so many times, and yet it struck differently with me watching it this time. Because when you watch it on this time in the context of the game, it looks so easy. Yeah, It looks like they've just gone, yeah, all right, let's fucking score another one then. Let's score a worldie yeah. ball here. It feels like Fiji just switching it on and going, yeah, okay, we can do that, rather yeah. than an all-time moment of great skill. Yeah. Whereas when you watch it on its own, it could be in a game they lose, feasibly. Sure. Whereas here... Or it could be a dramatic late winner. It could be, yeah, as as I thought it was. But here, it's just, it looks like a choice for them to score that. Yeah. They Two go, and a half right. minutes after Angera scores. Mad that, isn't it? And the Welsh implosion doesn't stop there. It just continues. So Alex it gets worse. Been having an absolutely torrid time under the high oh, ball in particular. God, he's just been mate. giving away penalties constantly. Like almost the first thing that happens in the game is Delasau rips it out his hands. Yeah, he has such a nightmare here, Popham. Not only does he drop, I think, two high balls inside this one particular Welsh implosion. And that sounds like I'm pinning the implosion on him. Not at all. Like no, he's, no, no, no. Everyone no, is just as bad as him here. He gets jackled by Rambeni on a kick return. Mm. Everything so is thing, going badly right? for him. So he takes the ball and he's completely isolated in the backfield. And Rambeni gets over him, jackles him, presents a chance between the posts for Nicky Little to go. Yeah, right, we'll keep his momentum up. And yeah. he knocks over this penalty two minutes after Delisau's try, which was three minutes after Ungera's try. Like. Yeah. In the space of five minutes, Fiji have scored 15 points. Yeah. Where in the 15 minutes where Wales were on top, they scored three points. Yeah. But this is the point where I've written down 
what is going on. Wales are not in this game whatsoever. No. All of these players, you can tell, all they're thinking about is a mistake that they've made. Not one person yeah. is thinking about this, the game that they're in. Everybody looks pissed off. They're, when the cameras look, go on to Wales, none of them are talking to each other. No. No. They're that's... not in this at all. This is the really staggering part as well, because that penalty that Little knocks over from Poppin being isolated comes because Fiji's kicking game is now notably better than Wales' as well. Right? Like, their structured kicking game, their tactical approach to it is so much better than this team of, you know, professionals. And it's not like Fiji's even kicking with... very much. No. But literally every element of the game has now swung completely. Yeah. They can, they're picking and choosing ways they can win this game and get and be better than Wales. Yeah. How much do you physically have to be better in dominating a team for that to be the case? The longest period of this without Wales doing something shit or conceding is because a streaker runs on the pitch and yeah, they that's... have to stop the game for like it's... a minute and a half. Yeah, that streaker stops Fiji's momentum much better than Wales ever do. Genuine, genuinely, like no joke, yes. And, you know, lad gets carried off. They do bring up on comms at that point that there was apparently no security in the stadium, which is mm. insane. Yeah. Like, why? But anyway, that's by the no, by. So it's, no, so it was that they had security in the stadium, but the nature of the ground, the pitch was so close to the fans, they can't physically put a layer in between. Right. It's basically like you've got a clear path down onto the pitch. Either way, that's stupid. Yeah. Popping the giveaway penalty almost immediately off the back of the last one after Alfie puts a kick out on the full. Yeah, oh god. The Alfie kick on the out of, uh, on the full. I was going to say it's like a turning point, but it's like it's just another compounding of the error. It's like yeah. even the one guy we were relying on has just absolutely shanked that. Yeah. Well, it is. You start to look for this Welsh team, right? It, I suppose Stephen Jones hits the post of a penalty right before the Ungera try. Mm. But since then, right... Gareth Thomas puts a ball out on the full. Mark Jones misses that ball. Tom Shanklin makes a terrible tackle and does a terrible kick. James Hook is James Hook, a speech for himself. Yeah, Shane Williams falls off a tackle on De La Salle. Stephen Jones, you know, missed that penalty, fine. Dwayne Peel falls off a tackle. Alex Popham's given away two penalties. Martin Williams is absolutely phenomenal, but that's, you know, a different matter. Yeah, he's the one guy. Colin Chavis has, you know, entered the ruck from the side and given away a penalty. Ian Evans has messed up a line-out. Alan Jones has messed up a line-out. Chris Horseman's given away a stupid penalty. Matthew Reese has been excellent as well, but, you know, there you go. And, yeah, Geffen Jenkins, you know, has had a perfectly okay few minutes. But been fairly anonymous. Anonymous. This is in the space of five minutes. Twelve of the team have made a huge, like, match-turning error. Yeah. Like a really confidence-knocking error. Yeah, and so suddenly, all of that starts to compound it, and it goes from going, okay, well, you know, our 12's having a bad game, or our fullback's having a bad game, but we've got to rally around him, to all these players individually going, well, I'm retreating into my shell because I'm now having a bad game. Because Fiji yeah. have got so on top of them. Every single Fijian player is playing better than their opposite number. Like, Martin Williams is one of the best players on the pitch, but Akapusi and Gare is his opposite number. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I have written here as well, Rambeni mugs off Dwayne Peel on pick and go. Oh, God, yeah. He picks the picks the ball up, and again, his feet combined with his power just completely shrug Dwayne Peel to a side, like the, the combination of those things. And they get near the Welsh 22, and as you say, Colin Chavez comes in the side and just kills the ball. Nicky Little goes, thank you very much. 18-3 is now the score. 18-3. Wales are nowhere near in this game. 18-3, right? That penalty goes over in the 23rd minute. Yeah. At 16 minutes, it was 3-0 to Wales. Yes. That's eight minutes they've conceded 18 points. 
And you know what the worst thing about this is? We have not reached the tip of the iceberg yet. No. So, the kickoff then comes, and immediately off it, Fiji break the line again. Yeah. They burst right through. So, Wales source the, the guy who catches the kickoff. I'm not sure who it is. But they get him to the floor, and they set up a rock, and you go, okay, job one is done. Now put pressure on their exit. And the camera then pans wide. You see the mm. shot of the whole screen, at which point... Akapusi and Guerra are suddenly, suddenly running downfield with the ball in his hand. And you go, what the hell has happened here? Yeah. And they've somehow let him through the middle of the ruck. They've not bothered to guard the middle of the ruck. They've done the first thing and got the guy on the floor. And then they've done the most criminal error and left a load of space where the ball already is against Akapusi, Bloody and Guerra, who is insanely fast at this stage. And literally at this point, like I had to just pause and i was just like how how is this getting even worse how is this getting worse well so so my by then bombs the he has a similar situation to shanklin in the second minute of the game and he bombs the timing on the pass means yeah. they still have the ball you know inside the 22 but he's blown what was a try scoring opportunity i've written Ngera links with by brackets who is slow <laughs> yes and by doesn't give the pass they end up in the 22 and here's the thing right also, this why is not past De La Salle? Like, I know. It's a no-brainer. This is Wales' best defensive passage <laughs> of this period. Jesus. And by that, I mean they win the game line once over four <laughs> phases. Like, there is one phase after this break where Wales catch Fiji behind the game line. Everything else is just them slowly relenting as they just give them more and more ground until they give in, until they run out of space. But that's the thing, because when... The next break comes, you look at it and you don't think that's on because you think like, oh, yeah. Wales have a defensive line set. And yet, as we were saying earlier, Seremiah Bai just chooses like, oh, yeah, I can make a line break because the Welsh just general structure in knowing how to make a tackle on somebody is so poor mm. that there is not really much of a gap for Bai to go through there, is there? No. And yet he throws the dummy and goes straight through one. Somehow that happens. Inside just, the opposition 22 already. The Welsh defence looks sad. It does. It does. Like, it looks depressed. It looks miserable. It looks like Wales, I think, was feeling as a nation. Yeah. And I think it's an interesting thing. It's, I think it's a hangover of like that pessimism we were talking about earlier. Of, like mm. The entire Welsh team has gone, oh, God, this is the day we get battered by Fiji. And they've kind of shrunk into themselves. Yeah. And yeah. it's something that I think took an awfully long time to be trained out of Welsh rugby players because I think it was assumed that, you know, you'd have these terrible days and this would happen. And it's why I always held like Wales wouldn't have won the 2011 World Cup no matter what. You know, if they made that final, there wasn't red card, whatever. They were always going to bomb out in most likely that France game. I think they still would have lost that regardless because of that kind of like... I don't they shot themselves strong enough. a lot. I think it's a generation yes. of players who were used to losing and grew up watching Wales lose all the time. Yeah, and they were like, "Oh, this is another calamity for the ages." Like when I watched West them lose the Western Samoa on the TV twice. Like when I watched them lose to Romania on the TV twice. You know, it just kind of felt like that. Where was it lost to Italy in the Six Nations this year? It was kind of all building into here's another calamity, here's another embarrassing moment, and yeah. there is nothing being done by any player to stop that. No. And I think it's something that took Gatlin 12 years to train the players out of, to break that cycle. It did. And I'm really glad, actually, he's back because he's able to stop that cycle again before it's set in with... If there's one thing he's good for, it's that. It's that kind of mentality and being mentally resilient 
and yeah. fit. And he understands Wales as a country and as a rugby nation so, so well at this stage, you know. Yeah. And so it kind of leads to the situation where Wales aren't there and instead they're all just miserable and individual. And as you say, like earlier in the game, they already were kind of man marking instead of defending as one team as a line. By this point, by the time they're not talking to each other, by the time there's no communication, it's yeah. become even more depressive and miserable. And yeah. it's so easy for Bai to split open. Yeah. And Gareth Thomas gets back and makes the tackle. Uh, mm. It's a brilliant tackle Gareth Thomas makes. But the thing is, it doesn't matter. Nobody's looking at it and going, oh, brilliant tackle Gareth Thomas. It's like, oh, thank God, you know? Yeah. yeah. It's just like, oh, yeah, brilliant. He stopped a try there. But Wales, once again, having not learned from their error of about 45 seconds ago, just leave the fringe of the breakdown completely unmarked. And so Kelly Loaire, the second row for Fiji, can just choose to crash over once again. It's so easy for him. It's so, so easy so for easy. Fiji in general. Like, they look like, like when they're playing Namibia in the following World Cup, right? Who are posing like this minimal resistance, like they're physically making their tackles. Sure. Like, you know, it's not like they're playing like an under-16s team. But also, it's really easy for them. It is. It is. And I just have written down at that point, no fucking way is it this bad. No way is it this glum. 25-3. They are now at a point per minute. My full notes on that try read as follows. No. In caps, underlined several times. How is this worse than I imagined? How is this worse than I ever heard? Yeah. Don't let Gareth Jenkins get to the car park. Yes, I had the same thought. Well, here's the interesting thing, right? So I'm going to skip forward 10 minutes because we're talking about this here. Yeah. But at half time, a Welsh supporter walked over to the boxes, the kind of corporate boxes, the press box was right next to the WU sponsors box, right? Mm-hmm. A, <laughs> a Welsh supporter who was nearby spotted this, walked over and shouted, top of his lungs, taxi for Jenkins! Oh no. This was as told by Mark Orders. That would have been great, though, because he'd have gotten out of the car park. He'd have been all right if he had a taxi. It's at this point, right, that David Pickering and Roger Lewis, who were executives at the WOU, hear this and looking at each other, Pickering says, we can't carry on like this. Oh, my God. <sighs> that guy doesn't know what he did. The thing is, it, it was happening regardless. You know, Of like, course it was. Those two events took place. We don't know if one triggered the other. You know, but like, yeah, There was yeah. a fan that shouted taxi for Jenkins at the Welsh management's box. And David Pickering said, we can't go on like this. Oh, my God. Wow. Because there is that shot of Gareth Jenkins walking towards the tunnel at half time. Yeah. And I felt from there because I thought he's going to get mobbed. They're not sat too separately. They don't have their own fancy little box here. They're not sat mm. too far separately from the fans, you know, the paying customers. Yeah. Like, th- he could very easily hear what certain fans in the stadium will have had to say at that point. Yeah. And I really felt for him seeing him walk to the tunnel. It's like, he needs to get out of here because he is in trouble. So at halftime, Pickering, Lewis, who was, you know, so Wales chairman David Pickering, chief executive mm. Roger Lewis, and John Williams, who was the head of communication at the WU, agreed okay. they would have a meeting on the pitch at full time because that would be the most private space they could find. Oh my God. So they set that up at half time in order to discuss, as they said, the fact that we can't carry on like this. So even if they won that game, they. Even if they, they won know. that game, they were going to have the conversation about sacking Gareth Jenkins. About sacking Gareth Jenkins. Yeah. <laughs> That's mad. If they went to a quarter final having 
probably decided at least that they were sacking the coach. Could you it's... imagine that? Yeah. So we'll get on to that. This is a but a tease for everything that is to come in the Correct. sixth hour of this podcast. Yes. Let's but wrap up the first half because there's some the stuff. First half, the the rest minutes. of the first half is so miserable. It's it where it gets even worse. Like, you think Fiji being a point a minute after 25 minutes is as bad as it can get. And then Wales get the ball. Oh, my God. It's dreadful, isn't it? Fiji aren't saints in this either. Fiji are co- constantly in the last 10 minutes of this half giving them opportunities and going, yeah. right, do you want three points here? Okay, even if you go for a scrum, you can drive us over. Whatever you want, lads. If you want to score, you can get loads of tries built up, at least points beyond us. And Wales just go, nah, not interested. The best passage of attack Wales have in this last 10 minutes, if not in this entire first half, actually, come to think of it, is... There's a point where they go left to right like five times. Then Stephen Jones sits back for what looks like could be a drop goal, but I don't know, and drops it. And you just go, fuck me, this is woeful. So in 2005, right, Max Boyce, who is a very famous figure in (laughs) Wales, an influential figure in the history of rugby. He was a very famous comedian in the 70s, Britain-wide, but particularly in Wales, where he was this kind of like singing comedian who was a really, really big rugby fan. And became mm-hmm. very well known for singing songs about Welsh rugby. And he sings these kind of like, kind of tongue in cheek songs about, you know, the, the outside half factory of the fire yeah, factory. The Pontypool you know, front the, row. The Pontypool front row. He'd write songs about kind of Welsh rugby folklore. I think he was a really important part of like the cult of Welsh rugby growing. Yeah. Where people would that. go and sing Max Boyce songs. And so Hymns and Arias is probably his most famous work yeah still gets sung in Welsh stadiums today all the time it is one of the joys it is you know having been to watch the ospreys right because the ospreys have one chant which is ospreys and it's rubbish but sometimes people will sing hymns and arias and that's the best one that's the good one you know because it was very much written about swansea and that swansea you know everything else yeah so it fits right in 2005 after wales won the grand slam two years before this bloody shit show max boys rewrote hymns and arias to be about the current Welsh team. He updated it from being about the 70s Welsh team to being about the 2005 Welsh team that won that Grand Slam. So he re-updated it for 2005. He'd previously updated it in 1999, where he wrote the following verse, which was for the game against England at Wembley. He wrote this verse originally. He then incorporated it in 2005 when he did the updated version, right? The next game's back in Cardiff, if they finish it on time. They say it's got a sliding roof that they can move away. They'll slide it back when Wales attack so God can watch us play. <laughs> Which is A, a fantastic That's line. Amazing. But B, right, if God had been watching Wales attacking this half, if God had been watching, and some would argue who's on the pitch playing second row, that's right, Ian Evans, if God had been watching Wales playing this half, he would have spread bloody cholera through the Taff River. <laughs> he would have struck the entire population down. <laughs> He would have bloody grabbed Clonefly and chucked it in the sea. He would have taken every individual person in bloody Swansea Beach and he just would have let them drown. Like, so not even on in the water. Like, they just would have drowned on dry land. Like, it is such a horrible, horrible attack. If God could have seen it, he would have regretted all of his choices. He would have blighted Wales and burnt it down forever. He would have looked at it. He would have bloody burnt Scotland down as well, just by association. <laughs> it really is that bad, isn't it? I, th- I don't think there's anything I can add to that to extend what you were saying, because it's so painful to watch. And as I say... It's horrible. 
Fiji are letting them attack and they're yeah. doing nothing. There's a point where I've written down Wales blow a six man overlap because they don't know how to stand behind the guy who has the ball next to them. <laughs> yeah. And like Fiji defensive passive in a very different way, where they're kind of not engaging, they're standing off as a yeah, line, as a unit, as a choosing team. Choosing to drift rather yeah. than And they're marking waves so easily. They're not applying any pressure, they're just helping yeah. contain them. Exactly. And so there is no pressure put on Wales. They're able to continue attacking and God they keep getting in their own way. They do run one really like ambitious fancy move, which is like six passes in a version of give it to Shane. But all the Fijians just drift onto Shane Williams and smash him, and there's like three people waiting yeah. for when he gets the ball. Both Shane Williams and Alan Wynne Jones get smashed by Ram Benny in the same minute. Oh man, Ram Benny's absolute murder on Alan Wynne Jones <laughs> he's, is enormous. He's an animal. Yeah, it's next level. But also, what's mad is. Wales completely dominate the scrums, right? When they, they get given a couple of penalties and they're absolutely killing Fiji at the scrum. Yeah. And you go, okay, here's a positive. This is something positive. You have to cling on to this, right? And they don't even. Yeah. Like the next couple of penalties they get, they go, oh, what should we do? Oh, I don't know. Maybe go for the corner. Should we well, go yeah. for a quick tap? So Wales' first penalty they get is stripped in the post, like 20 metres out, just inside the 22. And they go for a scrum. Some Maddox yeah. is losing it because he's like, you know, there's lots of time left. Just kick the points and get back in the game. Which I don't disagree with. Back in. I don't disagree with, but I also see why Wales didn't go for it. Agreed. I think you want to hold the momentum a bit, but also I think, you know, the important thing is that you score. And I think the important thing is that the reason why you're going for the scrum or the attack is not out of panic. And I think what Simon Maddox is trying to say is they were definitely doing that out of panic. Which is undeniable. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, it is the main motivation there for Wales is sheer panic. But then Alex Poppin breaks off the scrum really early. Yes. Just as they're starting to get a nudge. So they could have eked it out, get on the penalty. They could have, you know, kept going. Potentially even, when we see how dominant the scrum is for the rest of the half, they could have pushed it over from 20 metres. Yeah. Or at least got really close. But instead Poppin breaks off. Wales keep going for a while. They eventually lose the ball. It's like, it's all a, such a state. Yeah. And yeah, for some reason, on the penalty, they don't go for another scrum. Um, no. It takes them another five minutes of Fiji giving away penalties. Hook kicks it backwards when they go for the corner. Oh my god, he does. I blank that out of my mind, but he does. It's one of those things where your brain just fails to accept that that's a real yeah. thing you've just seen. But you're right, he does kick it backwards by like two or three metres. It's stupid. Stephen Jones drops it cold off the yeah. scrum as well. Like, just knocks it on cold. God, it's awful. awful. There's another five for six minutes of Fiji just giving away penalties, which I'm just going to gloss over because it's not worth going into just what Wales were doing was so shit. But eventually, thank God, they have the realisation of like, oh, our scrum's going pretty well. Should we take a scrum? I'm pretty sure they randomised choices on what you can do on a penalty and just accidentally said scrum to the referee. I think he overheard the the word scrum and the referee was like, please take a scrum for God's sake if you want to be in this game and just awarded it to them. And they go for it and they batter Fiji on the five metre line. The scrum starts pushing all the way and you see Alex Popham with the ball at his feet, two metres to go to the try line. You go, he's going to blow this. He's going to drop this. You you know that. You yeah. know he's going to drop it. And by some pure coincidence, he doesn't. And he does get the ball down. And Wales score a try, which is insane. Yeah. And look, in some ways, they absolutely don't deserve to have anyone free. Three points as a reward for those first 10 minutes, fine. Right? Yeah. Their scrum is so dominant, you can't begrudge them this one try. But like, Mm. 25-10 is not a fair reflection of how dominant Fiji have been. No. The stadium very condescendingly plays Have a Nice Day by Stereophonics. Tell you what, right? 
The stadium DJ has an absolute blinder. I think he's a like man <laughs> of the match contention. He's yeah, absolutely fair. phenomenal the entire way. The music he belts out the moment Fiji, like the full-time ball goes out and Fiji win. Like he suddenly puts on this like, like the uplifting music from the end of an anime when they've sure, overcome the quest sure. and like collected the precious gem or whatever. But yeah, Wales score and it's just not right. Speaking of not right, right, after Stephen Jones hit the post once from a quite tricky position, they give the kicking to James Bloody Hook. Oh, Jesus. Who, in fairness, drills this easy conversion. Yeah, yeah. But then again, that's not a given, is it? So no, it does deserve some praise. But I'll tell you what, it's not the only um, setback Stephen Jones takes around this time. Because Fiji randomly try their best to implode briefly. Yeah, it's very brief. It's sort of... Because we have this moment where Wales get a try, mm. I don't know if Fiji go, well, that means they're going to score three more, doesn't it? But yeah. There is a mall formed as Fiji have made a great kind of choke tackle before there were choke tackles on a Welsh player. And Stephen Jones comes to run in to join the mall, right? At which point, Akapusi Ungera, who is on the side of the mall, raises his leg and kicks Stephen Jones in the stomach. Genuinely mindless from a world-class player. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's the worst thing any Fijian does on half by some mm. distance. It's stupid. It's like a proper cunt's trick move to borrow a blood and mud phrase. Just, like, cowardly bullshit. Yeah. And I think Simon Mannix has one of the worst takes in the world on this. Dreadful take, saying it shouldn't even be a penalty. It was just self-defence. Yeah. So, Stephen Jones is coming to join a mall, right? Which he's perfectly allowed to do. Mm. And then when he sees Stephen Jones entering, about to hit this mall, and Akaputi and Gary kicks him in the stomach, he goes, well, what else are you supposed to do? It's self-defence. A- you don't have self-defense b it's not kicking someone in the stomach yeah and c it's part of a mall get out of the way if you don't want to be hitting the mall and also if you're an upside flanker and you're at all phased by a fly half hitting the mall that is not a good reflection on yourself no completely not like it's honestly I'm, you know it's it's the worst take of the entire commentary and yeah. hey you know what he limited it to one absolutely atrocious take so fair, fair enough to him. yeah but yeah Ungera gets kicked right in front of the referee. Like the re- when you watch the replay, the referee is stood like almost between the two of them, looking yeah. at them. Yeah. However, the touch judge sees it on the big screen and then calls over the referee, yeah. Stuart Dickinson, Australia. to award a yellow card for Ungera, which is justly deserved. Yes, I think that is the absolute least that could have been done. And I'm going to just read out the notes that I have for the remainder of the first half. I saw this and I then wrote down Hook Pen 13.25 half-time Gareth <laughs> Jenkins rushed to changing room. Ooh. And then I overestimated something. One thing being Wales in this game and more specifically James Hook. Because this kick is in line with the right-hand post. Yes. It's not quite a strip between the posts but it's very, very close. I would say it's between like, the posts, even if it's not between out. the posts. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. He's in that kind of vicinity, isn't he? He's like, yes. technically, like, if it's MLR, it's an automatic conversion. If he's scoring exactly. in that range, you know? Exactly, yes. Then my notes read, no fucking way, James Hook. Between the sticks, he's missed it. Even for him, that's a fucking atrocity. I'm going to show you my notes, because I absolutely lost it at this point. James Hook, you bellend. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> I could not believe what I was seeing. It was like I'd inherited a trauma I never knew I had I know. watching this whole first half. It was 
utterly horrible. And the thing is, like, you want to be happy for Fiji, and I want to talk more about how glorious Fiji are. And we're talking about when they get through individual tries, and we talk about Fiji individually. But, whoo, that was a hard-going half. When James Hook missed that kick, I Mm. listened back to a segment of the episode we had on the third-place playoff in 2011 with Josh Mm. Gardner, because you will remember the kick he missed in that game. Straight between the posts, uh, or next mm. to the posts, right? Was that and on half-time as well? I think it was just before half-time. Okay. But what I said in that was, because I remembered that kick from 2011, I remember that being like one of the worst moments of James Hook's career, right? And the fact that I'd watched that when we were doing the podcast for the 2011 series, I'd watched that knowing he was going to miss it, made it so much worse, because I was looking yeah. at it and going like, oh my god, no, this is awful, don't put me through <laughs> this, I'm going to see James Hook miss this kick, which anybody in the world will think he's going to get but here i literally assumed he was going to get it it was awful as you say it brought brought up a trauma which i didn't need to dig back up on commentary martin gilliam brings up that the previous year in the magnus league james hook had missed a very similar kick that would have won the game against glasgow and ultimately (laughs) cost the ospreys the title i buy it i buy it yep it's atrocious it brings down what is and i want to ask you this right where do you think this ranks in terms of the worst halves you've ever seen wales play that's a good question i think there was the half against Ireland in 2013 was quite bad. The first half before yeah. they did the comeback and then obviously went on and won the Six Nations from there. I mean, the, the first half against Ireland in this year's there's Six f- Nations yeah, there's a few against was Ireland. pretty bad. Mostly in Dublin, but then also this year yeah. in 2013, as you say. Yeah, I think you're right. The majority are against Ireland. But the thing is, Ireland are really bloody good. Exactly. Uh, and so it's always Fiji, been a good Irish team. this is hampered by a bias, which is, and regular listeners will know this, I've said this before, Wales versus Fiji is my least favourite fixture in all of rugby because of games like this where because Fiji can have a better 15 out than Wales and Wales are always expected to beat them and rarely do. They are Wales' bogey team, like all ends up. I mean, to be fair, so this was the ninth game between Wales and Fiji and the first time Fiji had won. Okay, sure. It's still the only They always play shite against them regardless. But it always feels like it's going to go that way. Yeah. It's full of dread, and that's why like, we're in their World Cup pool again. And out of all of the teams other than Portugal in our World Cup pool, Fiji are my favourite, and yet they're the one that I absolutely cannot stand the thought of us losing to. They're the one that I want us to beat so badly. God, yeah, I would trade virtually anything for Yeah, I can't face Wales losing to Fiji. It's probably also partially down to the fact that one of the, in fact, probably the first Wales game we went to after giving a shit about the rugby was Wales' 16 all draw with Fiji in the Autumn Internationals, yeah. which was awful. And that was one of the worst games of rug- uh, rugby I've ever seen Wales play, right? So to answer your question, again, this is massively hampered by bias, both for and against Fiji, because I both yeah. love them and I hate them when they're playing against Wales. It might be the worst half of rugby I've ever seen Wales play. I honestly agree. Yeah, Look, I mean, the 87 tournament, they were awful, but they weren't half. I think players. it's all relative. It's all relative, though. Like, but that's the thing. Relatively speaking, I think this is the worst half of rugby I've ever seen Wales play. Yes. Again, you've got to be relative to, like, again, the Ireland teams were played shite against. And, like, there would have been times where the All Blacks have battered us and so on, like, where the half has been just as bad. But this is, it's just a However, complete calamity. I think there's a linked question. Yeah. Which is, relative to halves you've seen Fiji play... Where do you think it's ranked? Oh God, that's a that's a great question. I wouldn't actually say it's right up at the top because I think they Would do make not? a lot of errors. No, yeah, because they do make errors. They let they try and let Wales back into the game, and because Wales are so shit, like if they played against a competent team, Fiji would still be winning by like a decent margin. But 
I feel like a competent team will have got something past them rather than just one pushover try. But, and like, and Guerra does that stupid kick and everything. This was not a perfect half, which I think is a credit to Fiji in a way. But like the tries they score and everything are, you know what? Fiji's ceiling in this half is better than any time I've ever seen Fijian rugby in 15 aside. Yeah. Yeah, I'd agree with that. So look, I've never seen the game in 1998 where they put 50 on Scotland, right? Mm. But if you look through the all-time great results for Fiji and you kind of compare this, right? So mm. that game against France where they won in Paris in 2018, I think Fiji are better in this half than they were in the first half there. Yeah, and they I basically that. won that game in the first half where they were absolutely fantastic. They scored their two tries in the first half that Randrander and Tuasova. You look at their win over Scotland in 2017 and... Again, I think they were better in this game. You look at the win over Italy that same year. I think this half is pretty much as good as it gets for Fiji. There's probably yeah. halves against tier two nations or against smaller nations. Yeah, sure. That stood out more, where maybe they were more comp. You know, but you are right, relatively speaking. Yeah, um, like, as so I say, the half though, where they put you know fifty on Uruguay. Right, what's insane is they're not perfect. But... They're so far from perfect here. Yeah, but in attack, the, they're not. I think it's the best <laughs> half I've ever seen them play against a tier one nation. I'll say yes. That Yes, for sure. And so sure. I think they're relative. I think it'd be fair to scale it up. Yeah. Uh, no, they're absolutely outstanding. As I say, they have a few moments of sh- trying to shoot themselves in the foot and somehow missing. Mm. Clearly, they had James Hook in charge of the rifle. <laughs> Word for the atmosphere as well, because it is unreal. Inc- incredible. And the chance of both, Fiji in a French accent are phenomenal. Both sets of fans are so loud. Yeah. The French fans are really getting behind Fiji, but they're also not afraid to shout for Wales when they start to do well. Sure. Which happens twice. And it just leads to this incredible carnival atmosphere where everyone is so loud because they know how high the stakes are. Like, yeah. if this game took place in any other context, right? And so these two teams did play each other right before the World Cup, you know, two years beforehand. And Wales won thanks to a late drop goal by Nicky Robinson, which is a hell of a thing. It wouldn't be the same because yeah. the context, this being a World Cup knockout game, essentially it isn't. But it is, you know, it's a, essentially a quarterfinal playoff, like the one Ireland lost in 1999. I don't hate them. I just think it's funny they lost to Argentina again. Adds so much jeopardy and emotion to the crowd. You know, it's kind of why the Rugby World Cup is the best thing that's ever happened to rugby as a sport. Yeah, Because it sure. creates moments like this that never would have existed otherwise. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And there is nothing better at a Rugby World Cup than a Fijian crowd who are happy. <laughs> Absolutely. And so should we look at the second half then? Yeah, there's a few moments of Wales hiccuping. Like there's one point where Tom Shanklin takes a kick really cleanly, and then steps into touch. Oh yeah, makes you cringe a little bit when Nicky Little puts a little kick through, and Shane Williams like really nearly bungles the regather of it on his own try line, and it makes you fear that they're going to score another try, but they're just about okay. And then comes a moment which is extremely against the newly established run of the play. Yes. I think it all slowly builds this kind of half. This all starts to kind of trickle in and trickle up. And Wales are starting to look a bit more like a rugby team. Mm. Like not a good one, but they look like a rugby team. Sure. You know? Sure. And so Martin Williams makes an absolutely brilliant turnover. That's a blinder, isn't it? His turnover. And Wales spread it. They chuck it right out. And who should they find but... They're now top try scorer of all time, Shane Williams, on his own 10-metre line. And once again, when that ball came out and that first pass was flung by Shanklin to Shane, I thought, oh shit, is this now? 
So Shane Williams takes the ball, solidly inside his own half, not far outside his own 22. A little bit of space to work in. He bursts down the wing. He absolutely burns Rabini, who yeah. has been phenomenal all game. Yeah. Burns him alive. Right? Delisau comes up to try and cut him off from the backfield. And Shane goes for a dummy kick. Yes. He goes full Eleanor Snowsill. Yes. He would be very pleased with that comparison. Goes for the dummy kick, which is very effective here when he's at full yep. flight and the space in the backfield. And it, it does wrong foot De La Salle, which and is also it's a exactly rare what, sentence. It's not something Shane's thinking about, but it's exactly what De La Salle would have done in that situation. So yeah. of course he buys it. Of course yeah. he believes it. Absolutely. And then he cuts inside, doesn't break stride at all. It's incredible. And as both Naivua and Rotuvu come across, they're both really like corner flagging for Shane. And once again, he steps inside and beats them both at once. It's incredible. It's a hell of a step. This is up there with the unbelievable couple of steps he does in that try against Argentina. Yes. It's up there on his highlights reel as well worth looking up. As and there's one against one France of the where he steps incredible... Claire. Yes. And I guess the Habana one where, you know, absolutely. Yeah, at that point. We could go on. But, we need to stop this. Yeah. But I think this is up there as one of the most impressive, like, physical Shane Williams efforts. Yeah. Yeah. His acceleration is what does it for me. Like, yeah. And the fact that there is no deceleration as he steps inside and does the dummy kick and then does the incredibly needless dive at the end. And it's like, you do realize you're getting hammered by Fiji. That's the thing, right? I've always heard people talk about that dive and hating it and being controversial because I've only seen it in highlights packages. I've gone, well, it's an incredible try. And of course, he's mm. having to saw it. Watching it in context and being like, no, I'm miserable. I'm hating this. <laughs> having one player go like, yeah, but I'm the bollocks, aren't I? Actually does piss me off a bit. Yeah, yeah. And I'm not sure if it was him being deliberately nonchalant to piss Fiji off or what. No, but... he was just happy he'd scored a worldie. Yeah, I think he had. He think he knew that people were uh, going to watch this 16 years later and do a podcast. It's also, though, him. like, it's completely ridiculous yeah. as a piece of skill. Like, there are so few players in the history of the game who can score that. Yeah. And this is against a defence who's been completely on top of them. They've not had an inch of space all game. There's and not another worst player won. in history who scores that. No. Or at least there's not one that scores it consistently. You know, like yeah. Alex Cuthbert scored that worldie once. We yeah. haven't seen him do it since. Like, Gerald Davis this. takes that on a lot of occasions, but Shane could do that at the drop of a hat. Yeah. It's just like, it's a phenomenal, phenomenal thing. That sometimes when you look at how technical rugby can be, and it can become, or how skill-based rugby can be, and it can become, you forget that it's just as valuable to have a player like Shane Williams in your team who can do that out of nowhere. Yeah. Shane Williams scores that try, incredible try, like absolute worldy, one of his all-time greatest tries, which is really saying something for Shane Williams. And off the kickoff, Seru Rambini tries to behead Gareth Thomas, gets pinged for it, and Dwayne Peel is off with a quick tap. Peel really comes into his own in this kind of period. And I thank God, part in... because he was yeah. shocking in the first half. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think Dwayne Peel is broadly bad in the first half. At the start of the second half, I think he's fantastic and a big part in Wales. I think he, he up in the game completely. neutralises his performance in a good way in the second half. I think, look, I think he's worth enough credit that he's ultimately worth a 6 out of 10. You think so, you think so. Okay, yeah. I won't dispute that. I think that. he ultimately ends that. up doing more good than bad. Yeah, okay, I won't dispute that, I won't dispute that. But yeah, he takes that quick tap, manages to get on the outside of Fiji and tries to chuck a pass back inside. He has Alan Wynne-Jones in close support, and he has Tom Shanklin like, trying to keep up on the inside mm. from a bit more of a distance. So he goes for the gamble, tries to pass to Shanklin, and Rotuvu comes up with a huge like intercept to block that from becoming a try-scoring chance. 
He just about drops it, though, leading mm. to Wales getting the scrum. But yeah, yes. it's a huge moment of... If Wales has followed up in the same way Fiji did, of scoring right at the kickoff, I think that would have been a really significant momentum yeah, change. agreed. But Fiji, having themselves only had the momentum stopped by a streaker, managed to do something to halt Wales's once Wales get into a similar sort of ascendancy and pattern. Yes. You know, having scored two tries in a row. They just do something to kind of slow their momentum just for a moment. And yet, Wales somehow score off this scrum, which feels like it should be an accident. Yeah, it's really well taken, though. It's I a think, lovely try. It's a really, really nice try. They start it with a back row move, which is quite nice, where yeah. all three of the back row get their hands on the ball. And then, yeah, they recycle the ball very nicely. I suppose having all three back rows around and Dwayne Peel all in like a close vicinity does make for a quick recycle an opportunity to get the ball out. And they do. They spread the ball wide. James Hook does this inside pass to Mark Jones, which looks so like obvious and telegraphed that you feel like it should be shut down. And so Fiji just don't bother marking it. Yeah. Throws the inside ball to Mark Jones, who cuts through the line and I would say quite unselfishly gives the ball back outside to Gareth Thomas, who scores in his final cap for Wales. Yeah, scores his final 40th try for Wales. Does the eye which... teller for the final time. Yep. Was, of course, where was his record try scorer at this point? Yeah. This is the last one he scored. This is the 40th try, which meant, you know, Shane Williams took an extra week longer to break his record. <laughs> yes, indeed. It meant that Shane Williams didn't break it until, you know, the game where it mattered most, being that Grand Slam decider. Yes. Because otherwise he would, just, he would have, yeah, he would have broken it like the week before the Grand Slam decider and that's not as good. No, so it's, it's actually good. really important that this is the one that broke it. And he would have broken it by fending off Andrew Trimble playing 12, which, let's be honest, would have been done for match fixing. Yeah. So, as it is, instead... Alfie scores right here. Really, really nice try. It's a lovely try. It's a lovely try. I'm being cynically harsh on Wales. It's a really lo- lovely try. I have written beauty, few, Jesus. Mm. But that's it because you have this Welsh period of rallying, but you also mm. know that it can't last very long. James Hook has been, so to speak, shepherded. Stephen Jones gets the kicking back again because yeah. they saw what Hook did and went, Jesus, what were we doing? What were we thinking? Sp- Bloody don't let God see this, or he'll bloody chuck Bridgend in the sea as well. <laughs> Stephen hits the posts again. Mm. Which isn't ideal, but you know what? It's a lot better whatever the fuck James Hook did, so I'm fine with yeah. it. Yeah. Honestly, just put us out of misery. Call full time already. Wales then have another mini attack in their own half. Gareth Thomas puts through this really nice grubber kick, really well rate- weighted. Mm. And James Hook is, in like a footballing sense, one-on-one with Raul Looney. And basically, if James Hook can get his foot on the ball and get it past Raul Looney, he is in open country ready to score. And mm. Raul Looney does a proper goalkeeper dive to save this ball, which is probably a deliberate knock-on. But I think it's such a spectacular piece of skill that you have to just go play on. Yeah, you have to kind of just applaud him for it, don't you? Because he goes proper, like, two-handed goalkeeper dive for it and blocks James Hook's kick from going into the in-goal area and instead sends the ball into touch. It's fantastic. It's a great moment, but it does give Wales the attacking opportunity. Yes. The fact that they had to then build from set-piece did slightly dampen Wales's momentum, rather yeah. than being like straight off an attack. Yeah. However, there is a thing of like Wales have really got their tails up at this point. Yes. And they run a really nice move, classic Welsh move, from the bloody valleys, the Lynn Jones mm. move. 
eventually get stolen by the All Blacks and they score off it in a World Cup final for the years yes, after this. Yes, the Woodcock move, as it is famously known, but it did originate in Wales. Yeah. So, they chuck to the back, Martin Williams up in the air. You have Alan Wynne-Jones, lovely bit of detail, goes to engage with the Fijian players at the back to form a ball. Yeah. Really just a great blocking line. And Dwayne Peel is chucked the ball right down the middle, where he bursts right through, Popham's on his shoulder, is put up to five metres out from the line. Really, really nice bit of move. Geffen Jenkins steps into play scrum half, and he is one of the quickest scrum halves Wales has ever had, considering Mike Phillips comes on after this, genuinely <laughs> far faster getting the ball out. Yes, Wales then are in reasonably good shape, dare I say. Yeah. They've got their width, they've got their depth, they've learned to stand behind the guy with the ball, and they throw a mispass out to James Hook, who looks like he's going to blow it, and so Fiji will go, we know, we've seen this guy before. <laughs> he's going to dummy it, isn't he? And James Hook pulls the wool over our eyes, double bluffs us, and throws a miss pass to Mark Jones on the edge. Great ball. It's really a brilliant well pass by James He has Hook. a little like, stutter before he throws it as well, yeah, which is lovely. Which you think is him blowing it, right? Yeah, but instead he's just buying himself the time to throw the ball flat yeah. for Jones to run onto a full pelt, meaning he beats everyone to the corner and can take it in under the post a bit as well. Yeah, so Mark Jones scores that try, and you go, oh my god, a whale's in the lead. Yeah, I cheered. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really nice try. It's really well taken. Like, it's exactly what they wanted off that set move, you know? And this is where I get to, I think, the interesting kind of tactical decision that is always talked about, that mm-hmm. Wales get sucked into playing Fijian style of rugby. I think Wales are completely right to do that. I don't think that's necessarily what they're doing here. Yeah. I don't think Wales are playing a kind of Fijian style open game. I think Wales have gone, okay, the thing that's affecting this Fijian team is tempo and like one, two punches. Yeah. So what they've done is they have raised the tempo enormously without necessarily getting loose. Like, yes. we're still playing with structure at this point, I definitely but they're playing agree. incredibly, incredibly fast. So I like, definitely agree. You say, you know, it's coming off set piece. Yet these two tries come off set pieces because they allow themselves to lay a platform and then run something off first phase that they then open up on second phase and yeah. score off. Yeah. Both of those tries come from that. And the shame Both off finish on the edge on second phase. That's exactly what you want yeah. as an attack coach. Exactly. I think Wales play is completely right. I don't think it's the kind of tactical miscalculation that i was led to believe i go on to also mention that scrum five pod but hey whatever it was what i was what i was told down the years i think wales initially played this tactically right in the first 10 minutes they're yeah. then just all at sea and terrible and like not doing anything for quite a while yeah. and then when they do get back into the game when they do get the shane williams try as a kind of a, like a lucky break and that martin williams turnover they then play it tactically superb for about 15 20 minutes yeah I think that's entirely fair. And the thing is, the way we're talking about this shows that that Mark Jones try kind of punctuates the period of the game that we're talking about, right? Yeah. Well, because I think the next 10 minutes after this are a fascinating period because Mm. it's properly wrestling back and forth. It is. And because Fiji are looking for a way back in here. Yeah. It's the period of the game where the least happens. Yeah, it is. Because Because I think Fiji are trying to prove to themselves and to the audience that this isn't one of those games where they were great for a half and then just run out of steam. You know, yeah. I think they're really desperately trying to prove that. Like Nicky Little gets a penalty, like pretty much immediately after this, because of a. High it's tackle. not though, is the thing. No, an offside, right? No, but the so the interesting thing here is right. Like I also have it written as the next thing in my notes. It's nine minutes later. Oh, is it? Like there's nine minutes in which basically nothing happens, but also things do happen. Just the two teams are going back and forth and like really wrestling for the momentum because it was so Wales and then it was so Fiji for so long and in such style. And now it's been pretty Wales again for a period. And then it becomes the thing that ultimately defines the game where Fiji grab it back. 
you know, Fiji go back to a kicking game and they start playing far more sensibly mm. and their line-out really settles down after being quite dodgy in the first half and their scrum has also improved immensely. They bring on Henry Queen Dravu, who I think has a big impact at the scrum as well. Yes. It's also helped by the fact that Mahu Reese goes off injured and not long after this, Duncan Jones comes on for Chris Horseman, forcing Geffen Jenkins to move to tight head with less preferred position. Yeah. Mike Phillips also comes on. I know that's a different yeah. area. But... So that's an interesting thing, because I think Mike Phillips coming on is a decision I would have agreed if it happened five minutes later, because he yes. slows the game down. And Wales were in this big passage of like, they gained momentum by speeding the game up so much yeah. and living at a pace that you weren't. from Gareth Jenkins, that's an admission that that period is finished, or that period of momentum. Yeah. Because it is, because it's the thing, he's the guy you put on when you want to slow the game down. Yeah. And they don't, they don't, they want to capitalise. But then again, I guess the game does kind of naturally slow down and Fiji play their part in that with the changes you make and so on. But then the more and more this game slows down, the more and more whales are susceptible to error, I think. Yeah. Well, because they've now lost their way, having been so in control for a brief period. Mm. Yeah. It just doesn't quite work for Wales. They mm. still keep making errors and allowing Fiji more opportunities. But Fiji run this amazing passing move. Sorelli Bombo, very good, very good three cheers. Having just come on the field, throws this fantastic like overhead pop, mm. which is so nice. Rotuvu does this inside flick. And Delasau, good God, just... That guy in space is just something special. Seeing him so, go for the goose step whilst basically stood still. I always thought of this game a little bit as the De La Salle game. Yeah. You know, the game where he absolutely tore it up. Yeah. And the thing is, he has the ball about four times, but he's unreal every single time. <laughs> like, there's actually very little De La Salle content. You know, he's like bloody Hannibal Lecter in Silence of the Lambs, right? Like, he's on screen for like 15 minutes, but he is unbelievable in it and so terrifying that he won an Oscar and everyone thinks about that as the Hannibal Lecter movie, as the, you know, Anthony Hopkins' movie, even though he's barely in this, like, two-and-a-half-hour film. Sure. Right, like, De La Salle is the Anthony Hopkins of <laughs> Welsh rugby. Yes, yes. Because he is such a villain in this game. Uh, and he you're really right, like, is. every time he pops up, Wales seems surprised by it. And it's like, you shouldn't be, lads. You, you've seen <laughs> this all before. But, like, off the back of that, Mark Jones kills the ball on the floor to stop the Fiji attack. Little kicks it. Fiji back in the lead, 29-31. Yeah, which is a big turn, yeah. I think. Wales do have one lovely moment. Mike Phillips goes on this really nice arc. Nugget does some lovely hands. And Mark Jones does a little chip. Yes. Which doesn't quite bounce for him, but does give Wales a good attacking opportunity. Yeah, Rylini runs into touch. Yeah. They then get right up to the try line. Oh. And they are on the line looking for the try that will surely seal it. They're just behind, but they sense this could be it. You know, the game's coming up on the last 10 minutes. And Michael Owen drives to the line. He's basically over and he presents the ball back instead of grounding it. And then Mike Phillips flies in over the top of the ruck from the side and gives away the penalty. It's mindless. And it goes without saying that Dwayne Peel wouldn't have even thought of doing that. Yeah. And it costs, where's the chance? Yeah. Everything's gone. Two tiny moments of miscalculation and suddenly their last real attacking opportunity is gone. Little would they know that would be it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that is it. Like Fiji kick it downfield and they do get another penalty like on there and like Kayama Boli goes quickly. They just once again introduce each other onto the ball so nicely and the lines of running are just terrific. 
I then have written down, who are you and what have you done with Seremiah Bai? <laughs> Seremiah Bai had pace for like two seconds in this game. What's going on? That's amazing, isn't it? It's an amazing, amazing thing to be witnessing. Yeah. And also trying to understand. Yeah. So Nicky Little like flings this really like ambitious wide ball. It ends up as a bounce pass, which is, as we all know, undefendable. Graham Dews on the wing, rides the tackle, and passes back inside to Saramiah Bai, who has this just terrific sprint for the try line from about, I'd say, about 30, 35 metres out. Mm, and going for the he corner. He looks quick, man. He looks quick. Yeah. Oh, I thought it was Rambini. I, my brain was would Saramaya compute Bai. it was Saramiah Bai. Yeah. I just, I wouldn't, I wouldn't allow it. I wouldn't allow no. it. I knew it wasn't either of the wingers because he didn't look like him. But Your brain is Rambini. correct to do that. I just completely ruled it out because Samaya Bai was like a portly fly off who could crash the ball up if he wanted. Like, yeah, you know, we've established he, he wasn't, wasn't a fly off. But yes, I take your point. He wasn't this quick guy. However, no. also not a quick guy, and maybe this puts it in perspective a bit, is Duncan Jones. And can we have a moment here for one of the greatest efforts by a prop you'll ever see? I didn't see this. What did Duncan do? Right, so if you rewind this, if you watch this try back, right, or this non-try, you know. So, this ball gets out, as you say, Jews throws this lovely pop-off. Duncan Jones starts on the 13 channel. He oh. rushes off and cuts off the space, which forces him to throw the wild pass over the top, which means it's the bounce pass, which obviously is undefendable, but like also means there's a moment of inaccuracy that Wales could have capitalised on. All because of the pressure Duncan Jones, the loosehead prop with the curly hair, puts on... In the 13 channel. He then, Lacanio Am style, turns and hounds back towards the wing, right? So the moment he sees Jews throw the offload, he starts like pelting it. He's like full Tom Cruise, like arms pumping, like knees up, like so fast going for him. And like there's this proper thing where he hunts him down and like by, if not for Duncan Jones' sheer effort here, if not for the absolute unbelievable like effort Duncan puts in, Bai is quite simply able to, like, fix Alfie and kind of cut inside or, like, ride the tackle or whatever else. Instead, Duncan Jones cuts down all this space, meaning he has to go only for the corner because there's no way he's getting round him. So Duncan Jones then flies at Bai, manages to, like, pull him slightly and slow him down, allowing Gareth Thomas to come in and finish him off. It's what a guy. just, like, it's unreal defence from a loose-head prop. He's just come on, you know, he's been on about five minutes. And he's, oh, I mean... It's absolutely amazing. Like, properly in awe of Duncan Jones' effort. We love you, Dunk. To we stop you, a Fijian centre flying for the line. It's also a hell of an effort by Bai. Like, yeah, he just about yeah, goes yeah. in touch, but he also managed to ground the ball in the process. Yeah, it's and a very tight call, isn't it? But Yeah, because that could have been the decider. Yeah. Fiji are two points ahead, yeah. and Bai is going for the corner, and is saved, ultimately, by Duncan Bloody Jones. What a man. There is a turn that comes as a consequence of that, because... Speaking of Nicky Little and passes. Yeah. So Wales managed to clear. Yes. They get the ball down towards halfway. Fiji throw in and they set up to attack. They play a couple of phases and then decide to play off 10 and play a little bit wider. At which point I've written in my notes, Nugget, thank fuck for you. I stood up and screamed, Nugget! I know that this try happened. I did not Me too. see this coming whatsoever. So I spent a few minutes before this going, Nugget scores an interception try, doesn't he? Like, that must be coming. I've forgotten about it. That must be coming. Like, I remembered that happened. And then, when it came, I screamed Nugget and stood up. Yeah. And I, like, 
a bit of my brain had to consciously process, no, this was 16 years ago. You know where I was going to lose this game. You know exactly yeah. what happened. You've got to let this go. What Don't I, cheer now. What I love about this, so Nugget comes from off screen, right? And Martin Williams comes from off screen. Mm. And it's one of those interceptions where he doesn't have to slow down to take it. He's not at yeah. full stretch. The ball just lands in his hands and it's like he's hit a line to go through, except he's from the opposition team. It's absolutely brilliant. And then obviously he's got the gas to go the whole way. Like he had an underrated bit of speed on him, did Martin Williams. Holy shit, Nugget. Have you turned this game? Look, we are the second and third members of the Martin Williams fan club, Sam Warburton being president mm. and founding member. However, it's just like, I think he is by some distance Wales' best player. Yeah, I of course he agreement is. about this. Yeah. He is absolutely fantastic. He just keeps Wales in the game and here almost delivers it on yeah. a plate for Wales. I don't think they find a way to win this game or get in a situation to win this game if not for him pulling yeah. this yeah, yeah yeah it's a phenomenal read the great pace to do it martin williams is a player who played seven not because of his size not because of his build but because of his energy yeah and, and he just brain. had a seven's energy yeah. yeah and he was one of the smartest cheating flankers you'll ever see and that was the only thing that got him there he was not big enough to be a flanker in this era never mind the modern day <laughs> and yet he was such a good he was a world-class flanker for such a long time because he just knew inside out everything you could possibly want yeah. from a flanker. Like, like his sheer knowledge and understanding of when to cheat. And there's another moment coming up as well that's, I think, a particularly great one. These days, he's slightly overshadowed by Sam Warburton coming after him, also being a world-class flanker. But I love Martin Williams, and I think that he is this era of rugby to me, for like in yeah. a way. But yes, what a try that is. What an interception. Yeah. Puts Wales ahead. Bizarre. 34-31. Stephen Jones hits the post for a third time in the same game. She's mad. And I think very crucially, Fiji win the kickoff back. Yes, seven style. Yes. And Fiji, speaking of sevens, go into full sevens tactics of Delasau just starts popping up at 12. Oh, mate. And even at 10. Like, yeah. he's popping up all over the place. He just wants his hands on the ball as much as possible. This We've skipped a few phases, but probably seven or eight phases into their attack. Delasau pops up at 10, runs this loop... And just by being De La Salle and that thing of like, they say that a loop creates an extra man. And mm. here it doesn't really create an extra man. It just means that De La Salle touches the ball twice in one movement, <laughs> which is like, why, yeah. why have De La Salle touched the ball once when you haven't touched it twice? And the second one's in slightly more space. So therefore it's undefendable. And he makes it's... the break on the outside arc. Mark Heller's law that if I touch the ball once, there's a chance we can score. If I touch the ball twice, we will score. If I touch the ball three times, I will score. Yeah. And if he had got it the third time, he would have scored. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And Mark Keller, of course, dick of the tournament from 1987, Yes, was not De La I mean, I'm sure he was an amazing player. I never actually saw him play. But De La Salle had the advantage of being Fijian. So yes. bloody, yeah, makes that break, gets all the way up to one metre of the try line, gets scragged brilliantly by Mark Jones, and Fiji go into pick and goes and just scrambling to oh, see if they can get over the try line. Well, so, hold on, you're missing something here as well. Go on, what am I missing? Yes, it's Mark Jones, but also Martin Williams. Yes. So Martin Willi- So Mark Jones gets the initial scrag on him. Martin Williams comes in and drops him properly, like drops mm-hmm. him immediately to ground. Bam. Oh, and yes. then Martin Williams superbly rolls deliberately in the way of the ball 
like holds onto the ball so that he can't even attempt to place it back, gets directly in the way so that his head is where the ball should be. So the nine's reaching in and he's like, oh, it's like a bald ginger head here. Okay, this is not what I was expecting. It's like, because it's definite the Fiji are scoring if they get anything oh, yeah. resembling. Oh, yeah, Like, yeah, not yeah. even quick ball, like medium speed ball. <laughs> yeah. And they're scoring. Just ball. However, yeah, if they just get the ball, Martin Williams goes like, I am just going to put my body absolutely in the way here. I will get a yellow card, but there's four minutes to go and this means we can reset our line. Yeah. yeah. And he knows that's probably a worth it as a calculation. Definitely. And yet, doesn't get yellow carded. No. But, crucially... Graham Dews doesn't even bother complaining to the referee. He just reaches over Martin Williams and pulls the ball out from between his legs where he's managed to lodge it. Like, and Martin Williams is waving his arms in the air like, Sir, I'm not doing it. Sir, I'm fine. Sir, I'm on side. I'm in a totally okay position. I'm trying to roll away. Look how hard I'm trying to roll away. And Graham Dews is like, Huh, that guy's trying really hard to roll away. I should help him out. Just get the ball out of there. <laughs> And I think because the entire Welsh team are going, our oh, Nuggets got the sword and he yeah. saved us by cheating. Don't worry, it. lads, we've got this one in the locker. We're fine with one. With one. And because, like, no props in Pontepool are doing that, you know. No. They're not thinking quick enough to pull it out. But for Gene Props, like, yeah, Jue, Jue. <laughs> and we just straight in for it. And he just flops in the direction of the try line. Like, there is. There is no, like, nous to this whatsoever. Considering all of the other Fijian tries have been, like, absolute fucking blinders. Here, Graham Jews just picks the ball up from a cheating Martin Williams and just falls over in the general direction of the Welsh defensive line. It's quite the thing to witness. Yes. I remember making a video and looking back and wanting to put Fiji's winning try in and being like, oh, it's disappointing to drive over. Yeah. You know, so I'll put the Dallas out try in instead. Sure. And I think a lot of people have made that mistake, hence leading to it almost inaccurately being described as Fiji's winning try yeah. regularly. I think we've just because... accepted that that was the winning try. Yeah, it was. It was. We all know. But the try so it goes upstairs, right? They, they go to the TMO. And have you seen Ian Goff's intervention in this? No. Ian Goff. Looks around, checks where all the cameras are, and then just falls over and deliberately stretches himself out. You remember planking? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He does that. He just like stretches out, like to be as horizontally long as he physically can be, enough that you just can't see the ball behind him. And he just stretches his whole body out, just in line with where the two cameras are. And then he rolls over uh, after the referee go, like blows his whistle. And you can see him turn to the camera and say, oh, fuck. <laughs> well, I remember Martin Williams doing that a couple of years later, where Conrad Smith had to try this aloud. Yes. Martin Williams slid, like, like almost slide tackles into the way of the cameraman so that you can't see the ball being ground from the only angle it would have been visible. Ian Goff was not that subtle. No, no, it was great. He just like sausaged himself in the way of the cameras. <laughs> but sadly, it was an obvious enough try that it was indeed given. Um, what a strike by Nicky Little that comes after this. Oh, his conversion's absolutely phenomenal. The sheer pressure on it. So good. Because... Of course, the try took it to 36-34, Fiji two points ahead. The conversion takes Wales out of penalty range, which mm. gives Fiji a little bit more of a license to do more in terms of trying to turn the ball over. Because at this point, if you're given a penalty beyond the 80th minute, you can't go to touch without being called mm. as full-time, right? So Little absolutely I... nailing this conversion takes it to 38-34. What a kick. It's, uh, Simon Manick said it's it. It's fantastic. You could, Drills it. Yeah, Simon Manick said it on comms that there is not a single player in Fijian rugby history that would rather have taken that kick, and that is the yeah. best kick of his career. Yeah, oh, absolutely. 
There's also a quick moment I want to mention from as the team is reviewing this, mm. where the ref says, so can I confirm I can award the try? And the TMO goes back and he's like, yeah, sure. As he says that, referee Stuart Dickinson of Australia is stood right next to TV's Thomas, the Welsh hooker, replacement hooker, who you can see his face drop. Like, he breaks inside. And very much I think the Welsh image of this game is Charvis after the game and James Hook put his hands on his head. At yeah, time. yeah. I think it's like Hook's the main one and then you've got Charvis the secondary image. Yeah. I think this TV's Thomas one's one that's really going to stay with me. Yeah. It's like the way his face goes of like, oh, we, we've done it. We've lost. See, for like, me, and I mean, it's kind of spoilers, but like it's Stephen Jones at full time. Mm. There's a point where the camera just has an unbroken shot of Stephen Jones for about 15 seconds. And he just looks emotionless. He looks, yeah, dead inside, as you say. There is nothing going on inside mm. there. And he's clearly just thinking like, I'm going to get judged my entire career on this, which obviously isn't the case. But... Yeah. He didn't know that. Yeah. He thought but I might not play you, for Wales again. That's what you felt. Yeah. yeah. All of these players were thinking that. You know, and Charvis didn't. Gareth Thomas didn't. Yeah. TV's Thomas, I don't believe, did. I think this was... No, he did. He played in... He played... He won two caps the following Martin year. Martin Williams announced his retirement, man. Like... Yeah. You know, obviously he did go on to play for Wales for another four years after this. But, you know, he, initially he did retire. Like, there's so many of these players did want to throw it in after this it's it's insane and yet fiji are near delirious yes we have what about 90 seconds left on the clock here yeah by the time the conversion goes over yeah wales try their best to just form something find some kind of structure in their attack but they get turned over with a minute and 10 seconds left by none other than villamoni de la salle yeah and Fiji, instead of going, let's slow this down, or even let's punt this long and try and, you know, hold Wales back, they go wide. They chuck the ball, like, 25 metres back to Norman Lingairi, who's just come on, playing in the backfield, who just runs towards injured Nicky Little in the middle of the field. Yeah. So Nicky Little is lying on the floor, and it is honestly He's horrible. Fucked, like, yeah. They cut in at one point to a close-up on his face, and he looks like Alan Partridge at the end of Alan Papridge, <laughs> who's watching the seagull sail off. Well, goal, goal, goal. Yeah, so Nicky Little eventually gets stretched off whilst grinning about the fact that Fiji are like four points off against Wales in like the biggest <laughs> game of his life, which is hilarious. I've never seen someone so happy to get stretched off, but... Yeah, that was pretty funny. But yes, you're right, there is very much that Alan so, Partridge like... about to die vibe. Yeah. But then Lingari makes this fantastic break, gets brought down right next to Nicky Little, and Fiji starts to pick and go on top of their injured fly half. What? What the hell are they doing? And at this point, what, there's 20 seconds left, maybe? And yeah. as the clock strikes 80, the commentator just going furiously, like, get it off the field, get it off the field, get it off the field. And Fiji go for two more pick and goes. Yeah, Stuart Dickinson of Australia doesn't inform them time is up, but there is a hooter. Yeah. You've also got clocks in the stadium yeah. showing you the time. And you've got the option of, I mean, so Rallowini, the scrum off, is the captain. He, he can, can ask the referee. He can just say, is that time? Yeah. Is that time? No one asks. No one tries. There's no effort to do that. So Fiji go for one more pick and go after full time, like right on the 18 minutes. And you go like, okay, fair enough. Maybe they you know, didn't realise yet, whatever. Then they go for a second one. And you start yes. to think, they don't know time's up. They don't know they've done enough. Like, the clock is now on 80 minutes and 30 seconds. They could have kicked this out a while ago. 
and they're still picking going to waste time. Yeah. And lucky to still be on the field. Martin Williams goes, thank you very much. Yes. And he produces an absolutely phenomenal turnover. Yeah. Which is much needed. And Wales suddenly have a lifeline and they get a penalty out of this, don't they? Yeah. And here's the thing, right? If Nicky Little misses that conversion, or if James Hook gets his kick at the end of the first half, Jesus, yeah, from between the posts, Wales have a shot at goal to win this. It's a long way out, you know. It's it's by it's no means around forty minutes on the, yeah. around the ten meter line, but it's pretty much between the posts. Yeah, it's not the easiest kick in the world, but you would back Stephen Jones to get that. Yeah, or yeah. hit it's the right hand than post. One again. He attempts, yes, or James Hook, even you know. Yeah, it's gettable. It's okay. Yeah. However, instead, Wales are left in this tricky situation where they try and quick tap it, it doesn't go very well, and they're brought back for the penalty for not 10. Yes. And they eventually opt for the scrum. Yes. Quite reluctantly, I think, you know, because they're not really sure what to do in that scenario. Yeah. But they get the ball back and they try playing blind. Yeah. And so the ball spins in that direction. Wales initially do get some good momentum. They then go back the other way, the far way, and they managed to make it all up to 22, where Martin Williams himself carries it in. Sarah Rambini makes the tackle and gets right over the ball. Yes. Rambini in conjunction with Delasau once more. The two of them clamp over the ball. And this isn't going to end, Wales couldn't clear them out and they get a jackal penalty and kick it out. No. It instead ends, Wales arrive slightly later... These two are on their feet, they're legal, they're supporting their own body weight, and everything is just very still. For probably about 10 seconds, the ball is just jammed with simultaneously Rambeni and De La Salle legally jackling, and like Colin Charvis trying his best to rip it back onto the Welsh side. And Shanklin, yeah. And Shanklin, yeah. Two things happen at once, which I'm very glad they happen at once. <laughs> yes. Where the referee, Stuart Dickens of Australia... Blows the ball as a scrum to Fiji, unplayable. I'm not sure why to Fiji, because where's the one going forward, but that's all irrelevant. However, at the same time, Ralouini pulls the ball out the back of the ruck and boots it off the field. Yes. Which gives the crowd their moment. Yes, and it gives Ralouini his moment, more importantly. It Absolutely. allows him to kick the ball. And look, technically he didn't, but also he did. You know, he, he did. had that moment. He did. And either way... It's the full-time whistle. It's Fiji 38, Wales 34. It's Wales out of the World Cup. But most importantly, Fiji bloody lose it. The entire squad rush onto the pitch. They're all jumping up and down. None of them quite know what to do with themselves. I just said limbs, but like their limbs are just like waving all over. It's like one of the most gloriously rambunctious and like aimless celebrations imaginable. Yes. Like it's not like... Like, often when teams win something, they start cheering, they kind of like, yeah, they hug each other, whatever. Fiji are just like at a loss for how they even celebrate. Yeah, it's phenomenal. You can just see the amount of Fijians embracing each other, both on and off the field. It's incredible. It's such a great moment. Yeah, the stadium erupts. As I say, the anime music starts playing in the background. And Fiji are just like apoplectic with joy. It's phenomenal. It's incredible. Like, you can't help but get caught up in it. And also, credit to the 
camera folk for cutting in the odd picture of the Welsh people really suffering. Sure. Because I think often it's easy to get caught up in one or the other. And I think this strikes the balance really well. It does. Well it does. In terms of how much you're seeing they both. They equally the important. kind of highs and lows. Yes. It's such a divisive moment as a rugby fan to look at that and go, yeah. what am I meant to be happy for Fiji? Fan. Yeah. Or what? It's such a poignant moment in so many ways. Yeah. It's absolutely amazing as a piece of television, as a piece of drama, as a piece of sporting drama. Yeah. It's, again, one of the Rugby World Cup's greatest ever upsets, one of particularly the greatest up to this point, if not the greatest. The amount of arms going in the air from Fiji, the amount of open mouth, the amount of jumping up and down and slowly hugging each other, it's fantastic. And they all kind of slowly come into, like, two huddles that slowly start to converge into one. Players are jumping on top of those huddles. De La Sau is on his own. They have both arms in the air, jumping up and yeah. down, like partying. It's amazing. And they've got these, yeah, like group huddles constantly forming as players, like hug each other. Someone starts spraying, spraying a water bottle over the top of them. It's amazing. It's fantastic. Eventually they fall down into a group prayer as well, whilst Geffen Jenkins like stands over his hands on his hips. It's fantastic. On your Fiji. So well deserved. What a team. Yeah. What a team. The team coming in and doing that group prayer at the end. It's like, beautiful. It's a really special moment. It's so lovely. Yeah. And like those celebrations go on for so long. Like you skip through, I was going to the huddle, they have a chat, all of that. You come back and Fiji are still hanging around, jumping up and down, cheering, celebrating. Everyone is so there, so into it. No yeah. one is leaving the stadium. Maybe Not a Welsh chance. Fans. Yeah. Well, well, about Welsh people leaving the stadium. Yeah. So Wales form a huddle really quickly or form the tunnel really quickly and head straight down and feed you like now we're hanging around here. Yeah. Like the moment so something I really enjoy, like Duncan Jones the last one down the tunnel, and the moment he goes, Rambini and Bai turn to each other and start jumping up and down and applauding. Yeah. Yeah, they can fuck off. We're gonna again, stay like, on this Graham field as Jews long as we can. Down the tunnel first, and he comes out the other end, jumping up and down, and runs straight back up the God, field. God, it's like, so infectious. Energized and you, it's, it's so amazing. infectious. I'm so so pleased for Fiji. As I said, like, I imagined that they partied long into the night, probably staying yep. on the pitch the entire time. Yes. Meanwhile, meanwhile, so Alfie gives an interview immediately. Yes, which is short, but I think he speaks really well. He does. He fronts up. He fronts up as. Someone clearly incredibly emotional. He's just won his 100th cap for his country. Mm. It means so much. Knowing it's his last game. And it's his humiliating loss that will forever be remembered as such. Yeah. I think he speaks really well. He does. In terms of how he reflects on it. How he reflects on how much it's meant to him. Yeah. You know, you kind of can't do more than yeah. he does there, I think. Yeah. He kind of says, like, we're really disappointed, but please go easy on us. <laughs> I think yeah. it's kind of the moral of what he's going for. He says, like, look, we're all very passionate to be here, and please don't lose sight of that. You can say that we're shit on the day, but do not lose sight of that. And I think that's an entirely fair thing to ask. Yeah. In the Slam documentary, he talks about the shame of it, how hard it was, yeah, and how I much bet. he needed to, you know, kind of front up. But he also says that if he was offered the chance to do it again, you know, to redo that day, he wouldn't, like, he he just felt like, well, you don't get a second chance at that. Like, a, we Fair. went out, we played the game, we played it as best we could, and we weren't good enough. You yeah. know, we lost. And we just have to live with that. We just have to get on with that and move on and keep moving forward. And good on him for yeah, you know, fair approaching enough. with that fair enough. kind of perspective. Meanwhile, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, an awful lot was taking place. Yes. So... We know, as I previously mentioned, that David Pickering, Roger Lewis, and John Williams 
the chairman, the chief executive, and the head of communications, the WU, had arranged to have a meeting after the game. Right? Before this World Cup, Wales had lost 62-5 at Twickenham in a World Cup warm-up, which left a lot of people, I think, worried. Post-match, Gareth Jenkins, the Welsh coach, said, we're on the right track, judge me on the World Cup. Yeah. Famous last words, those. Yes. Because so judge him on the World Cup, we will. Obviously, the headline in the Western Mail the next day was, judge you on the World Cup, Jenkins has to leave. Mm. But the thing is, that was the next day. Yeah. What they didn't know was what they didn't... Gareth Jenkins' current employment status. Yes. So, about 20 minutes after full time, Pickering, Lewis and John Williams head down to the pitch. So there are photos you can see out there of them standing on the pitch on the halfway line. The Fijian players are just heading in at this point, just heading back in after celebrating. And you've just got these three executives in WOU ties standing deep in conversation, standing having this chat. There were still people in the ground, there's still people looking, there's still people watching. You know, there were journalists there reporting on the fact that, like, the WOU stayed out and they had this chat in the middle of the pitch. And what they decided was that they're not going to wait until they're back in Cardiff, they're going to hold an emergency board meeting right now so these three decide we're holding an emergency board meeting with one issue on the agenda the employment of gareth jenkins as welsh national team coach so almost immediately these three head back up to the stands and they find somewhere else there so of the 40 members of the welsh board 13 of them are at the game and they got the other one to phone in they all went to the private bar in the stadium for like coaches and fans and everything and they huddled in one corner, right? So all of them with one other on the phone. For half an hour, they sat in the corner of this bar. Meanwhile, right, obviously, there's a rule in the Rugby World Cup where the coach and the captain or a player have to go out and do media duties, have to go out and do interviews after every game. And the losing team goes out first and the winning team out second. That's the Rugby World Cup tradition. So as Mark Orders of Wales Online says i'm going to read quotes from his piece which remarkably here this doesn't have like a fancy introduction that takes 300 words but you know a a bloody thousand words like the game his appearance was remarkable jenkins was close to tears a proud man who'd seen his dream in rugby come to nothing when it mattered he had a lump in his throat when he spoke but sitting next to him the captain gareth thomas had recovered a degree of fizz and defiance telling the media and this is a great quote from alfie it can be the most brilliant thing in the world and the most difficult thing in the world to be a Welsh rugby player. Yeah. At the end of the conference, Alfie went round and shook hands with all the journalists present. Fucking good on you, man. Gareth Jenkins quietly departed without saying a word. Yeah. He just slinked out, Do not apparently just looking broken. Yeah, don't blame him. Meanwhile, upstairs, the 13 board members plus the one on the phone, all dressed in their union blazers, as is noted repeatedly in all of this, in this bar, in this function room, apparently they like, had like hide away from the Fijian and French officials, unions, you know, union people who were there. They spent about 25 minutes talking about this and eventually voted, should Gareth Jenkins keep his job? The votes were 13 to 1 in favour of firing Oh him. my God. Wow. This was less than an hour after the game. That vote took place about 45 minutes. Recency bias does play its part. Yeah. Apparently, Jenkins' sole backer did argue the case for keeping him. Okay, fair enough. So, 
There's Freeman delegation again of Pickering, Lewis and Gerald Davis, who was vice chair of the WU, but was also part of the World Rugby Council, agreed they would meet Gareth Jenkins the following morning to ask him to resign with immediate effect. They figured being ruthless was the best way of protecting him from fans, media, etc. All, you know, getting to him. Because, as I said, the world was on Sunday headline the following day. Judge me on the World Cup. Well, we have. It's time to it's go. It's a setup, man. It's a setup. Yeah. The whole thing was going there. The whole thing was happening. And so. And so. <sighs> Wales head back to the hotel. However, Gerald Davis, the vice chair, one of the three people assigned to tell Gareth Jenkins that he's being fired, has to quickly head to Paris in order to be at a different World Cup fixture on his IRB duties. Okay. Leaving just Lewis and Pickering to tell Gareth Jenkins. And so the Slam documentary actually has footage no. of the car park from a distance. No way. So you can see this, right? There is two men talking to Gareth Jenkins, who are Pickering and Lewis. And then you've got members of the squad like on the other side of the car Holy park watching fuck. this happen. Imagine if you're one of the players. I was thinking that this whole time you've been telling that story. Like, Imagine being one of the players and going, have you heard Gareth just lost his job? We, yeah. we lost that so, game a fucking hour ago. So Duncan, you can see Duncan Jones really clearly and there's a couple of players stood around him. I think Mike Phillips is one of them. Michael Owen's one there. Oh, that's uh, horrible. And they're like stood there like looking over from the other side of the car park. God, like, that's awful. the same shot, but like they're watching, like no idea what's happening is someone from the WIU, oh my God. two people from WIU are in the process of firing their head coach. And like half of those were Scarlet's players who played under him at the Scarlet's as well. Yeah. And knew him well, you know, where he'd been involved for a long that's time. That's awful. The, again, the, the fact alone that they just did it, you know, an hour yeah. or so after full time in the car park after the yeah, game. It was, a, it was so it was eight p.m., eight thirty p.m. So it was a few hours later. Oh my! But they, god. they made the decision inside an hour, and then they told him a few hours after that. That's insane. That's absolutely. Uh, a journalist insane. from the Times had followed Wales back to the hotel and spotted them having this conversation, and then printed, you know, like, "Is this happening? Is this what's going on?" Rough day in Nantes, eh, Gareth? Jesus. Yeah. Apparently, in those like hours in between, Jenkins had already like figured it was coming. Apparently, he had time to think about it. He decided he wasn't going to resign. He was going, to, you know, if they wanted to fire him, they could fire him. If they want to terminate the contract, they could terminate the contract. Fair he enough. Wasn't going to resign. He's fronted up. Yeah. I've got respect for Gareth Jenkins for the way he's handled this. In his word, he said he felt he could still make Wales successful given time. Okay. So him, he's wearing this like tan suit in all his photos, and everyone else is in black. The squad are also in suits that basically match Gareth Jenkins as well, which is a really interesting thing, and. He goes. Wow. He leaves. Roger Lewis described it as a cruel necessity. So, like, Wales had... Yeah. Right after he was told, they went and told Lewis and Pickering, went and told Nigel Davis, Robin McBride and Neil Jenkins, the other coaches there of Wales, and then told Gareth Thomas first before the other players as wow. squad captain. Okay. So as Alfie says in his book in Autobiography, which is called Alfie, we were herded into the team room. So he'd just been told... And he was led into the team room where everyone else was. The atmosphere was surreal because we were still trying to come to terms with the defeat, the previous day's defeat. This was the following morning. This was about 8.30am the following morning. And suddenly we were being asked to absorb another bombshell. Things were moving so fast we barely knew where we were. Rogers spoke first, thanked Gareth Jenkins for his effort, but informed the players there'll be a new coach. There was a numbed silence. I've never been before in the situation in which things have been done like that. Oh, man. Gareth thanked us, but he was emotional and didn't say a lot. Then I stood up and I said, although Gareth had taken the bullet, we're in this together and all of us, in a way, to blame. 
And that was it. Before we knew, we were on the bus. It was difficult for Gareth in those circumstances, but he had our respect and certainly our sympathy. The bus journey was more or less silent. Man alive. Man alive. How a thing to go through in one day. Yeah. The worst bit, right? Where was it booked hotels for the quarterfinal? They had to cancel them. Thankfully, I think they got a refund. And as Tom Shanklin says in the documentary, they flew home the next morning. Oh, Like, so they got up that morning, right? 8.30 a.m., they're told Gareth Jenkins has been sacked. And then, like, midday, they fly back to Wales. Bloody hell. That's awful. Like, about 24 hours after the game. That's awful. 24 so, hours ago, they had no, no idea that any of this was going to happen. Nope. So they get on the coach from Cardiff Airport to the Vale Morgan Hotel, where, you know, the Wales team base, where they have the training facilities and the team stay. And this is like the real like horrible bit that Alfie, Tom Shanklin and Shane Williams all tell in the documentary and also Adam Jones talks about in his autobiography. That So they start driving up to the hotel, right? And there are two ways you can get into the hotel as Adam do- documents in his book. There's one where you kind of slip around the back, which is only really for Wales like team members where you kind of, you know, you go in the back. And I don't know if you've been to the Vale of Glamorgan. I've not. No, okay. The entrance, you've got the car park, you know, you've got all of that. Or you've got a back entrance, apparently, which I didn't know existed, which takes you straight into, like, the Welsh team facilities. So, you know, only really the Welsh national teams, you know, football and rugby, have access to that to get in that way. The team coach begins driving up the public entrance way, right? And the thing is, people knew Wales had flown home and people knew that was coming. Yeah. So by the time they start heading up the drive, Wales know there are media waiting for them at the entrance of the hotel. They oh, know there's people waiting to get quotes, Is Gareth take Jenkins photos. on the bus with them? Gareth Jenkins is on the bus with them. Okay. The bus starts pulling up along this way into the winding road. It's kind of quite a long road in. And as they're heading up, Gareth Jenkins stands up and says to the bus driver, sorry, can you stop here? And he turns to the squad and he says, thank you. It's been, you know, the honour of a lifetime. It's been incredibly emotional, but I can't face what's waiting for me there. Oh, no. So he thanks the squad. He grabs his bag. So he grabs like his suitcase there. And he also grabs these two duty free bags that he bought, things he bought at the airport. Okay. And he gets off the bus and he walks the rest of the way home. Or he walks a distance home until he called a taxi. Oh, man. That's awful for him. That's awful for him. Yeah. I can only imagine the sheer anxiety flowing through his entire body at that point. Yeah. That must be the worst, just bottomless pit feeling in the world. And because the other thing is, like, out to him. the lead into it, right, where he was initially the favourite for the job when Mike Ruddock got it, mm. he then had to wait, like, several coaches in advance. And obviously everything that happened with Mike Ruddock was a whole shit show that led to him getting the job. And the whole thing was such a calamity and he waited so long for this chance and then it all came down to one game. You know, if yeah. Nugget had been yellow card and they held out for one phase, or if Hook had nailed that penalty at half time and then they kicked the one full time. There's so many tiny variables. Puts the whole thing in perspective, doesn't it? Yeah, that led to this. And there's a thing that Shane Williams says that it was one of the most emotional things he's ever seen was Gareth yeah. Jenkins standing up at the front of that. And he thought to himself, like, we were the ones on the pitch. We're the, like, this yeah, man is yeah, broken yeah. in a way that. Like, he'd rarely seen someone that emotional and you that, consider, like, ruined As for, a like, sports fan, days. you just consider the coach or the manager to be a concept rather than a human being, yeah. don't you? 
I think we all do it sometimes. And yet, that really, really is sobering because of how much it humanizes him. Yeah. And Shane Williams said it's our fault. Like, we're the, like, this man is completely we broken. We lost the game. Yeah. yeah. We were the ones on the pitch. We were the ones that, that lost the game. Good God. Adam, in his book, does add a couple of details that I think are very appreciated. Okay. One, as well. So he, Gareth, so the bus came to a halt. Gareth stood up with a bag of duty free in one hand, a couple of Toberone and a bottle of whiskey. <laughs> thanks, Adam. Which is, thanks, Adam. Thanks, Adam, for adding that. And he bade us farewell. No valedictory speech. Just a brief thanks, and he was gone. He walked up the lane on his own, wheeling his own suitcase and clutching his plastic bag. It was a scene dripping in melancholy. He looked smaller, less commanding, like the whole experience had robbed him of his vitality. Man, that's so much going on in his head. I can only imagine how awful that is. Yeah. There was... Wow. After the game, and again, uh, the slam documentary plays a bunch of like media reaction you know from going and so on and there's a couple of clips of phil bennett both talking about well no very much talking about how the position of welsh national team coach has lost its dignity is the word he uses Mm. and he says look coaching wearers being in charge of the welsh rugby team should be the best job in the world but is it worth it for anyone when you look at that level of pressure on it that's it because if Gareth Jenkins had one thing in that role, it was dignity. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And maybe he did only have one thing in that role, but fucking credit to him. Yeah. And look, the way that Roger Lewis and David Pickering and John Williams as well handle it is pretty atrocious. It is. Very much so. Very much so. In front of the squad to just embarrass him like that. And for it's a setup for the media to mob him. Nigel you know? Davis, obviously the assistant coach, said since... Nothing will convince me that what happened that day was the right way to relieve someone of his yeah, job. Yeah, absolutely It was not. cruel and unnecessary to treat Gareth as the W who treated him that morning. Yeah, absolutely. You've got to be cool-headed when deciding something of that importance. Take time to reflect. Instead, Gareth was gone less than 24 hours after the game had finished. There must be a better way of doing things. Yeah. So Roger Lewis's version of this, his kind of take, was that after the World Cup, a lot of the best coaches in the world would be available. And so they wanted... It's be gone so they could start searching for a coach before the World Cup was over so they could get the best person for the job. Right? Well, thank God they did. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to hear the short list of names they initially had? Uh, go on then, quickly. Ian Foster. Okay. Robbie Deans. Wow. Steve Hansen. All right. Jake what White. Again? With their first four <laughs> short. And then Warren Gatland. Yeah, I was going to say. Weirdly, Jake White feels like the outlier in that list. And yet. Yeah. So, yeah, Roger Lewis had an informal chat with Steve Hansen in Cardiff. They had an email exchange with Jake White, where Jake White turned down the job in an email. Yeah. Which must have been funny if they approached him during the World Cup. Yeah, I was going to Or immediately after. He's just won the World Cup and he's like, yeah, I'm not coaching bloody Wales. No, you lot are a shambles, mate. He then flew to New Zealand, Roger Lewis, in order to speak to Foster, Deans and Gatland. He was on the same flight as it happens as Graham Henry's New Zealand, who were flying home after the quarterfinal. That's sort of so crazy. He had a- Quick chat with, you know, Hanson and Henry there. And we're like, yeah, do you fancy it? No. So yeah, he then met with Gatlin and Foster and then Deans. And yeah, in the end, Gatlin wanted it and went for it. And here we are today, 16 years later. Wow. Indeed. What a journey. It's really a f- absolute hell of a thing. Yeah. It's a disgusting bit of 
handling by the WIU. And yet sure. it's also one of the most important and notable moments in yeah. Welsh rugby history. Well, it's a good bit of drama, isn't it, for the stupid podcast we're doing? It is indeed. It is indeed. We've done three hours on this. We've done three hours on this. We need to wrap this up. We do. So, so we land the match and dick of the day? <laughs> hang on. This is the Welsh leaving party. Oh, God. Martin Williams is good. It's yeah. over. Yeah, Nuggets There great. we go. That's done. That's done. No, that's Shane done. Williams That's is it fine. done. That's it done. Cool. Welsh leaving party's done. Right, man of the match and dick of the day. Let's do this. So, man of the match for me is between... I mean, Rolooney's amazing, right? But for me, it has to be between Sarah Rambini and uh, Villamona de la Salle. And it is edged by de la Salle for me. Ooh, I okay. just think value per touch of the ball. He is incredible. And he scores that try. And it feels like so long since I spoke about rugby that don't have to do it anymore. But yeah, it's Villamona de la Salle. Okay, cool. Uh, you went the other way. I'm going for Sarah Rambini, who I think yes. is the best player on the pitch. I think he's absolutely phenomenal. Attack, defence, his breakdown work as well. He wins free turnovers, as well yeah. as being this constant danger of the 13 channel. It had to be those Breaking two. tackles, breaking the line. I do think Martin Williams, for me, is like, was genuinely in contention for me. I thought he was like as good as anyone on the pitch. Like, yeah. If he was for Gene, he would have been man of the match for me. Yeah, yeah, and I think he keeps fair. Wales in the game. And yeah, Matthew Reese has a really good be. half, but like... Yeah, it's Rambini. Dennis Howe, I think, is very good whenever he gets the ball. I don't think he has as much of it there. Yeah, Fiji, bloody excellent. Yeah. Yeah, bloody love Rolowini, Fiji. excellent. Naivo, the flanker, I think, has a really good game as well. Haven't mentioned him at all, I think. No. But yeah, I thought really strong. Yes. But overall, it's like, it's a team performance. You've got to pick out someone. Yes. But, you know, I, for me, Sarah Rambini. Yeah, fair enough. I'm glad that we've each gone for one of those two because those were the two guys yeah. that that sparked this. So Dick of the Day, right? I mean, Roger Lewis is definitely, definitely on there, especially in context we're on about. However, after this and the tone that we've been applying to this the whole day, obviously, right, we need to talk about the fact that Wales were fucking dog shit, right? Yeah. Wales were fucking atrocious. And so my Dick of the Day for this game is Martin Owen, our father, for getting <laughs> us to support Wales after this, going like, yeah, all right, this is a traumatic experience. I'm going to get my two sons to support this team. I had this realisation when you were watching the game, you were texting me, it's like, how have we ended up in a position where Wales is the team we support? Well, like, is it like genuinely important thing to us? I know. Like, it's crushing for me to watch a game from 16 years ago. Right? We didn't care at that point. It was no. so easy if we still didn't. I only cared about the coffee table. I do remember seeing Broken once. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, um, it's about time I gave him Dick of the Day. Yeah. Look, I mean, Roger Lewis has got to be a shout. Yeah. At one point, the commentary refers to Mike Phillips as Alan Phillips, which I think is fun. <laughs> Team manager Alan Phillips, of course. However, look, there are two contenders for Dick of the Day for me. One of them is Wales. Like the Welsh national rugby team. Yeah, look, Roger Lewis is a representation of that as the WU. However, also a representation of that is James Bloody Hook. Oh, Jesus Christ, I didn't even think about that. So, look, for... <laughs> You're right, is the thing. General effort, but also, mostly, because I think actually this is probably the best game of the tournament, which is a low bar, but look, he misses a kick between the posts that could put Wales in contention to win the game. Yep. So, and also would put a lot more pressure on Little for that final kick, which he nails. So, yeah. look, for me, Dick of the Day is James Bloody Hook. Yeah. I hate to be a broken be. record, but hey. Nah, you're right to do that. Whew. So, we come through to the end of a bloody epic. You know what? We talked a lot about that rugby match, and Fuck we did. did it. Please join us next time when we will try and keep France versus Georgia 
to less time. <laughs> I think we'll do it. We'll see you there. I'm not going to faff around. We'll, we'll see you there. I'm not going to Cobus Rynak around. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 